Slater foot there. Tuesday, and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 47 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott. Joining me this week, as always, Gavin, Jay Baxter and Graeme Steele. Gents, how's it going? Good, thank you. I mean, it's it's kind of felt to me like the first real nice weekend, almost the first summer weekend, you know, if you ignore some of the other events that have been going on. But this evening, I spent about an hour and a half of it looking through games on youtube from january through to about february before i had to tap out so uh spirits are pretty low right now well they are as well we just saw that whiskey bottle of yours and that is running <laughs> very low things you need to do when you're about to talk about adam montgomery absolutely and talking about tapping out joining us for a hat-trick appearance on the show this season hailing from nastyville north dakota it's the one and only andy murray andy welcome back to the show how are things very good, thank you. Hey, glad to be here as always. I think it's uh, quite appropriate that after the complete and utter chaos of my first two appearances, the worst 11 and the, the statue thing, we'll call it, um, <laughs> it's only right that the third one involves talking about some of the absolute worst football of all time. So <laughs> here we go. What can I say? We, you know, this is what we bring you back for. What I'm pleased about is the fact that we at least managed to schedule this appropriately this week. Um, so you can talk about slightly different games from what you've talked about before with us. Poor Tom Watt had to come back to talk about the Dundee game at Dens Park in October for the third fucking time this season last week. <laughs> the poor bastard. Um, he'll be away for a proper bout of therapy over the summer months, I imagine. But hey, there we go. Don't send us the bill, Tom. No, don't. Please don't. I'm going to get cracked in there as well now, I think, because we, we all need it. In a week that saw Billy Gilmore put in the finest Matty Longstaff tribute performance of the season as Scotland had the grace to gift the Ukraine victory and at the same time boycott the Qatar 2022 World Cup all in one fell swoop. What a great bunch of lads we are. That saw Dundee unveil their new mascot in the most tone-deaf of manners and that saw Craig Bryson decide to go part-time, which frankly was news to me because I thought he was already doing that during his spell with Aberdeen. He's joined Stenhouse Muir, of all people. It's another busy week on the ABZ Football Podcast and this time... It's time for us to go deep once again in our 21-22 season review. Andy, you're back with us. We touched on it earlier on as we plough through the months, the deep, dark months of January to March, which brings us the absolute nadir of the campaign, it's fair to say. But before we get through that, though, as many of you know, um, the club are currently engaged in talks with Aberdeen City Council in relation to the realisation of the proposed beach revitalisation programme. Be good if I could say it, wouldn't it? part of which contains potential plans for the Don's new stadium to remain situated at the beach area as opposed to Kingsford or anywhere else within the northeast of Scotland, which has probably been pitched to us in the last 25 years. Now, I think it's fair to say, I think we spoke before we started recording, Andy, the last time you were on, I think, was around the time that the beach plans had kind of come back again. And I think we all agreed at the time that the beach location was absolutely the one I think we'd all we'd all favour. Aye, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's obviously only a stone's throw from the current location. Uh the convenience of having a stadium that's you know relatively close to the city centre. I don't think I I live in Newcastle, so obviously I'm very well versed uh, in that. Um, and you know the, the Kingsford thing was rife with problems from day one. Um, 
yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the the literally the only thing I care about as someone who rarely attends games and doesn't live in the city anymore is that it doesn't have a running track. Um, <laughs> we'll see how those go long term, of course. But yeah, no, absolutely the preferred location. Uh, it's just the familiarity of it all, the not clogging up and already quite busy part of town on a match day, all of that stuff. Gav Graham, I think you were the same place. Yeah, entirely agree. I think if we can stay close to our spiritual home um, in the event that we can't just knock Pataldry down and rebuild it again, then staying close to it is the preferred option. I'd accepted Kingsford because simply we were like, it was like 20 years and we were pitching locations and it wasn't working out and that seemed to be the only option. But yeah, I think I would agree with Graham Hunter's sentiments as well that to move effectively into Aberdeenshire would have been possibly very, very detrimental to the club's long-term health. So yeah, completely agree. Would like to be at the beach if that's what's if that's what the plans are. Yeah, uh, same as everyone else. I think if I had my absolute way, I'm nostalgic. I would just keep Tawdry, but you've got to live with the times. And if we're going to get something new down at the beach, I think it's just, I think it's just a better option for the city as a whole, personally. So that's definitely where I would like to see us end up. So hopefully this actually builds a bit of genuine traction and momentum because, I mean, God knows how long we've all been here before chatting about new stadiums in, like I've said, location X, Y, and Z. I will repeat what I said though last time we talked about this in that there are guys in my work who are not from Aberdeen, they're not even from Scotland and they they drive past the training ground and they ask me almost every week what's happened with the stadium. And I'm like, yeah. listen guys, we did an 100-year DVD in 2003 and Stuart Milne was saying then, it was imperative we had to get out of Audrey as soon as possible. 20 years later, we still don't have a location. So um, they'll just rehash that. They'll just take that snip out for the 120-year DVD coming out next year <laughs> and just pop it back in again. So with all, yeah, with all these things, it's like until you know we have a new stadium with the scarf over its head, I take <laughs> all this chat with a, a big pinch of salt. Until I see Cormac with the spade or a little bobcat thing breaking ground, I'm not believing it. <laughs> Yeah, I think as well, that was the thing last time we spoke about as well, was the, the fact that there was kind of council involvement this time meant that we all also had that kind of cautious, like, up for the location, let's see what happens though, because with Aberdeen City Council, who knows what can happen, and Andy, you've touched on some of the things I think that we had concerns around about, like, stadium design and all that kind of good stuff, but I think our the, the four views from from ourselves align really closely, I think, with the, the overall support as well. I think there was a survey that the club put out a few months ago. They got over 6,500 responses to it. And I think something like 92% of those responses were also in favour of keeping the stadium in that area. So it's clearly the overwhelming um, location that people want to, to remain at. With the recent local elections in the city, there's now an SNP Lib Dem coalition in place. The Beach Master Plan is absolutely back to the forefront of the agenda in the city. There's a business case going in front of the council in the next couple of weeks. Now, as a result of all of that, representatives from the club reached out to us last week to ask if we would like to take the time to sit down with uh, the Aberdeen Commercial Director, Rob Wicks, to discuss the Beach Stadium proposals, put forward our questions to Rob, etc. So rather than just take questions from um, the three of us, as usual, we decided we'd canvas a whole bunch of you out there in the in the ABZFP solar system. We took as many of your questions as we possibly could. We kind of merged them together into, there was there was a lot of general thematic points coming up. So we tried to group them as best as we could into a set of questions, put them into Rob. So without further ado, here's our question and answer session with Rob Wicks to discuss all things about the new Beach Stadium. 
Rob Wicks, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. We're going to focus in specifically on the new beach stadium plans. And uh, I guess first things first, the, the survey that the club put out back in April attracted a really positive response from the support. I think there was over 6,500 responses. And I think I remember reading that over 92%, I think, of those responses were in favour of the new beach location that's kind of come to the fore in recent months. I, First things first, I guess, with the results of the recent local council elections, which have seen the SNP Lib Dem coalition taking the reins at the townhouse, I know that the outlined business case for the proposed stadium and the wider beach regeneration project is due to go before the council later in June. At this moment in time, just how confident are the club that these beach plans are going to get the go-ahead? Well, Gary, firstly, thank you for, for having me on and, and, and apologies if I sound a little croaky. It's It's not COVID. I've had a bit of a Bit of a head cold for a few days, but make, making my way through it. So apologies to, to your listeners if um, if I come across as a bit croaky. Um, I, look, I think the first thing that I'd say is that, you know, every, every local politician agrees that we've got to be um, ambitious and we've got to be creative in terms of how we improve the city centre. And that vision now you know, very much includes the beach. So when the council approached us to be a part of, of the plans at the beachfront, they made it really clear that they wanted a new stadium to be you know, very much an integral part of that. I, th- I think without the club and, and a new stadium as the focal point um, and effectively us being, if you like, the anchor tenant, I think it's quite hard to see how, how the plans actually stack up without that. So. You know, we're realistic. The the elections of you know literally just a month ago or so, and I think inevitably, I think any any new administration is going to want to stamp their own mark on on the plans. Um, but in our discussions with politicians from from right across the political spectrum, I think it's really clear that there is a you know a, a real desire to see to see these plans delivered on. Um, you know, Dave, as, as the chairman, is leading very much on, on, on the charge here. Um, myself and, and our FD, Kevin McIver, um, are, are, are working very closely with him. Dave is leading on, on raising the investment that we need. I'm working on, on what the stadium needs to deliver around the increased turnover. And, and Kevin's working on our 10 to 20 year business and, and financial plan. So there's a huge amount of work kind of going on behind the scenes. Um, it feels like we're a long way down the road. Um, but, you know, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the session, you know, the, this, this sort of project of this scale is not without its challenges. So I'd say we're optimistic, but there are still some, some, some hurdles to overcome. And as we just saw from the responses from the club's own survey, um, the overwhelming desire of the support, um, including the three of us on the podcast, um, would be for, to see the club remain in and around the beach area. I don't think that's up for debate at all. Ahead of the council reviewing the business case, like I say, that's coming up um, later on in June. What can the fans who support the project do to make their views known to their to their local councillors? Look, I think I think you know with with any new major infrastructure project, I think it's really crucial that you know councillors know the strength of support that's out there, particularly amongst the the, the fan base, um, and that you know they're not influenced by minority groups who can be very vocal. Um, I think this is why it's it's absolutely vital that everyone makes their views heard, um, ideally in writing to their councillor, stating you know uh, the fact that they support the project, why they believe the stadium should be at the beach. You know, we we've gone and commissioned some new um, economic impact research through the council. Um, I think that will come to the fore when uh, when the council meets in June. 
there's a further council meeting in, in, in August. But I think a combination of all of that, the work that's been done on the outline business case, together with the, the, the support that fans can provide um, through writing to their councillors, I think the combination of those things will, will really start to make a very strong impression. Once we once we got the invitation from yourselves, uh, Rob and and everyone at the club to have a, a chat today about the the beach stadium plans, we kind of took the opportunity. We thought it'd be a good or, or idea for us to canvas the the views of our listeners for questions that they would like to ask, um, rather than just coming from the three of us. I think it's always good to get that kind of wide wide approach. And we got, I mean, you can imagine, we got so many responses to this, and we had to restrict a lot of it to just touching on the beach then I know that's what we want to talk about today you know maybe fingers crossed if this goes well maybe we can come back and revisit some of the other topics that people look to raise at some point yeah very happy to focusing on the beach side of things like we, we took as many of the questions as we could we kind of grouped them into separate topics and, and and tried to come up with kind of questions which cover the broad spectrum of, of, of things people want to raise so if it's good with you we'll maybe just rattle through some of them just now if that's if that's if, if you're happy with that, so sure, I mean, absolutely, yeah, and very, very, very happy to come back on at, at, at any point and, and, and chat further, Gary. There's, there's a huge amount going on at the club, you know, away from the beach as well. There's there's uh, a lot going on, so very happy to come back and chat about other subjects as well. Great stuff. I mean, I think this is one of the first things that really jumps out to a lot of people. Um, at last year's AGM, I think it was yourself, Rob, that actually made mention that we were potentially looking at capacity for the new stadium in the region of sixteen to seventeen thousand, and obviously the chairman's previously indicated that our aspiration is going to be to grow our season ticket base to around the kind of 15,000 mark. So I think a lot of people have this question about, is this capacity question for the new stadium, is that being driven by by build cost? And, and how do we square that circle in terms of capacity versus aspiration, ambition, especially when you take into account, you know, away support allocations and, and things like that? Sure. Look, you know, I, th- I think some perspective here is is, is really helpful, and we, we had a um, a follow up session with with one of the shareholders who who came back to chat to us um, after the AGM because they had they had exactly the same question, and I, I'll, I'll give you the same answer and, and 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 a little bit more context. I think if you look at last season and and you know put COVID to one side, we we sold just over nine thousand two hundred season tickets. That was a record for the club. But I think it was certainly it was some some way off our goal of reaching fifteen thousand season ticket members. That, that's our aspiration. We we all have that as a as a key performance um, uh, um, target with, with, within the club to try and drive to that. Whether you work in the ticket office or or, or anywhere else, but we know and this is a, this is a number that is um, evident right across the SPFL. Um, that around 30 to 35% of season ticket holders don't attend games. You know, you've got a wedding on, you can't make a particular game, you're in that, you're in that percentage that can't get there. I think it's very, it's very um more evident up in Aberdeen because we have the sort of transient population, many of whom work offshore. Um, you know, perhaps more so than you might see elsewhere in the central belt. So to bear that in mind that we've got 25, 30, 35% of season ticket holders that don't turn up. The same at all clubs. If we meet our aspiration of 15,000 season ticket members when we move to the new stadium, and even if the attendance of those season ticket members went up, let's say it wasn't 65%, say it was 70%, even if it was a little bit higher, that would get us to 10,500 season ticket members who on average would be in the stadium at any one game. That would still leave us, on assuming a 16,000-seater stadium, Five and a half thousand seats that would be available. If we allowed, say, a thousand visiting fans, there'd be even less for smaller clubs. That would still leave four, four and a half thousand seats available 
that we could sell on effectively on a seat exchange basis, game by game. And that's something that we want to explore. And in my mind, I, I think, Gary, it's really going to be essential that we've got a stadium that is of the right sort of capacity that creates the atmosphere we're all craving. We go to Tyne Castle and we see the rake and we see the sort of intimidating atmosphere that we want there. I would far rather have a stadium that's like that, that is of a capacity that is full nine times out of 10 than six times out of 10, because I think it's only going to do the team the world of good and it will create for, you know, a, a much, much better atmosphere. So if we can help to drive some scarcity value right now, you can get into any Aberdeen game pretty much any day of the week. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for us, it's trying to drive scarcity, find a balance between the aspiration of season ticket holders, knowing what we know of, of the market and that, you know, 25, 30% people don't turn up when you see that at grounds right across the country. Is that 30, 35% number as well, Rob? Is that, um, is that something consistent we see across seasons? That's not just last season, for example. No, goodness, no. That's, that's completely separate to COVID. That, that's, you know, that, yeah. that's got nothing to do with COVID at all. Um, you know, if anything, it was probably higher during COVID for, for the reasons we know. And, you know, people nervous about returning to, to, to stadiums. Um, but that, no, that's a consistent number. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've chatted to colleagues at Hearts, at Hibs, at, at Celtic and elsewhere. And it, it's very much what you see. Um, you know, people lead busy lives. You know, we, we're, we're um, football is an, an important part of, of, of many people's lives, but there are a number of other things that compete for our time and attention. And, and you know, as I say, whether it's a wedding or a, you know, a funeral or an event you've got to be at or something else that's on, um, you know, this, this is the reality of, of what football clubs deal with. Yeah, and I guess that's almost irrespective of performance on pitch as well. I mean, obviously last season was... Not, will not be around the push a, a, a poor season on the pitch from the, the club's perspective and and that will drive people as well to not turn up I think the percentage shrinks if you're playing you know more attractive higher quality football uh, I, I definitely think that you know um, that, that, that that number gets lower but um, those are the average numbers and they're consistent right across you know all of the clubs yeah Um. Going forward, then, as part of the overall plans for what we're looking at, if it's at the beach or if it's elsewhere, um, do we intend to try and have any finalised stadium design designed to have an element of expansion capacity just on that off chance that, you know, we, we touched on it there, we had over 9,000 season ticket holders last season, you know, hopefully we'll match that, maybe beat that this season going yeah. forward. You know, we've got nine over 9,000 junior DNA members. You know, if you convert even just, I don't know, 30% of those members into regular attendees, season ticket holders, even at the numbers we're talking about there, do we run the risk of, of lacking that bit of headroom? And, and do we try and look at having some sort of expansion capacity within the stadium design if we, if we settle on 16, 17? I, I think the, the, the answer to that is, is yes, we've got to look at expansion capacity because, you know, who knows? This, this, is, this is a piece of infrastructure that is going to belong to the club and be our home for the next 50, 75, 100 years. Who knows? And, you know, who knows where Aberdeen will find themselves? Who knows what happens to European competition in the next 20 years? Um, there, there are a whole number of external factors that have got, got to be considered. We've thought about building a 20,000-seater stadium and replicating ostensibly what we've got at Pataudry. But given the build costs that we're having to deal with, and, you know, everybody is, is alert to the to the cost of living crisis, the, the supply chain challenges that we've seen as a result of COVID and, um, and the war in Ukraine. But the, with construction inflation, the cost to build a quality 16,000-seater stadium today is now £80 million. You know, we 
we've got to ensure that whatever we build is of a sufficient quality so that we can generate additional turnover. That revenue is absolutely vital to us. We're not going to get that if we build a, a stadium of any less quality. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's just no point in that. So if we wanted to build a 20,000-seater stadium, that's going to ramp up the cost to about 100 million. And that just that's not investable for us as a football club. That would, that would be wrong of the board to be trying to make that sort of assumption, particularly in the, in the current climate. So for us, building a stadium which is, say, 16, 17,000, but then having the capacity to expand that without having to redevelop an entire stand in time, um, you know, with, say, two to three, maybe 4,000 seats that could be added at some point in the future, I think that is something that is very much top of mind. It's something we've talked to the architects about to say, how can we do that cost-effectively now not put the seats in necessarily, but make sure that we've got the facilities, whether that's toilets or kiosks or whatever, they're there. So, again, we're not getting into massive on-cost further down the line. And I think other other elements of future-proofing, um, you know, will be considered as well. Um, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to affordability, but it is very much top of mind. And so I think, you know, fans should rest assured that that is something that we are we are looking at and so are the architects to make sure that that can be considered in the design. It seems like a good segue now to talk about affordability and the cost, I guess. Um, you know, in the Scotsman article that um, I think it was Joe Sked did with, with some quotes from the chairman last week, um, it, it also was touched upon in the interview that Dave Cormack did with uh, Graham Hunter, uh, I was going to say a few weeks, but it's probably a couple of months ago now, actually. Um, the projected build cost of this, the stadium at the beach is, is in the region of the 75 to 80 million pound mark, which is what you just touched on as well just now. And that's obviously being hampered by, I guess, an imperfect storm in the sense of global economy factors, supply chain issues, you know, what's happening in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, how, how does that, that build cost for the beach at the moment, the 75 to 80 million, how does that compare with like an up-to-date projection for a build at Kingsford, which is what we've already got planning permission, et cetera, for? And the second question, I guess, is going to be, how does the club foresee being able to come up with that level of funding? And and can the supporters also be given assurances that it's not going to fall on supporters to end up funding this with, you know, extortionate increases to ticket pricing, season ticket prices, which is something you've seen at likes of Arsenal, for example, where their season ticket prices have just gone, gone crazy. I think I think those are two or three of the of, of the key questions. So I'm I'm glad they've been asked, Gary. I think first and foremost, going back to going back to Kingsford, you know, we've not gone and spent any unnecessary resources, be that time or money, on on recosting Kingsford okay. right now. Um, but what we do know, talking to our external consultants and our architects, is that the same increases that we're seeing, whether that's for a stadium at the beach or anywhere else in Aberdeen, is going to apply. So that's another 25 percent on cost, um, which will be on a par with the costs that we're seeing at the beach. What we are hopeful of is that there will be some economies of scale given what's been planned at the beach that simply wouldn't exist at Kingsford. And I look, I know a really strong case was made for a co-located stadium and training facility. Um, and, and, and yes, there are some, some things that I think would work hand in hand there. But if you're talking about a stadium a redeveloped beach ballroom, new leisure facilities, and a revitalized beach. I think there are some genuinely interesting economies of scale, ways in which those facilities could be operated that would hopefully, you know, bring some of those costs back to a more sensible level. In terms of your second question, 
Um, you know, how, how does the club go about funding this? I think a couple of observations. I'd say, you know, we're, we're already discussing naming rights with um, potential organisations. That for us is a, is a really important part of the, of the funding mix. Um, it's going to be a key, a key funding stream. Um, we're talking to potential new investors, other sources of, of funding and, and grants. Um, we're also looking at the, you know, there's a number of innovative funding models, bonds, potentially a debenture or share scheme with fans. We've seen those put to very good use elsewhere in other parts of Europe. Um, I, I, I don't think that the scale of the project sometimes or the or the challenges that COVID and the global supply chain have had on, on prices um, has, has necessarily resonated with fans and, and just how big a... Um, uh, a task, a project of this nature is. So, you know, my, my ask to the fans, and, and so I know the board would, would echo the same sort of thoughts, is, you know, be patient, be supportive as we work our way through this. You know, four four years or so ago, myself, Dave, Kevin, we came to the club. Um, we, we effectively inherited the planning permission out at, at, at Kingsford. That was almost over the line. A lot of work had to go in to, to find some additional funding to get the training ground over the line. Um, and a lot has happened in the last, particularly the last two years. Um, and a stadium that was originally going to be pitched at, you know, 40, 45 million is now costing almost double that, you know, as we've seen inflation and, and supply chain um, increases come. And, you know, the, the, this thing isn't just going to get built and come out of the ground. Um, it's going to need an enormous amount of hard work and support and some really clever and, and, and innovative thinking. What we don't want to do and to get to your third question is um, have to come to the fans and say, well, sorry, season tickets are going to double in price. That's not an option. That's not sensible. Um, so we've got, it's, it's incumbent upon us um, to find the best way to, to, to fund the stadium. And, you know, I think if I use it as, as an example, you know, the, the stadium could very much be uh, a, a, a global, if, you know, certainly national, but if not a global exemplar of what a sustainable stadium looks like. And adopting that position um, is going to probably open us up to new funding opportunities and, and new new um, potential grants because it would be a, a real sort of beacon of sustainability. So for that, that's a really important area that we continue to explore. And I think the other thing, and, and, and I, I don't know whether any of your, your listeners have asked the question, but the one thing that we definitely don't want to do, and we've seen a number of examples of this, where clubs have embarked on a, on a new stadium project and the football budget's been heavily impacted as a result. That, that for us is the last thing that we want to do. There's no point in us moving to a fancy, all singing, all dancing new stadium uh, and not being able to compete at the level that we want to compete at. So in my mind, what we'd be looking to do is, is, is ring fencing the football budget, making sure that there's no impact on that um, and being sure that we can deliver this, the, this, the type and quality of stadium that we, that we all know we're after. You've clearly read my mind. Um, it was the very next question that we had in was around if the club could give assurances that, you know, the funding for the stadium is not going to be at the expense of the footballing operation. Um, you know, as you say, it's all very well having an all singing, all dancing football stadium. But if 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 things aren't happening on the pitch, it's it's almost meaningless to an extent. I mean, that's, that's being very dramatic about it, but it's not going to encourage people to be coming in and using the facilities and driving the revenue and all that kind of good stuff. Just in terms of the actual the overall strategy for the club, where does the new stadium fit into the just the overall strategy for the club? Is it almost a centrepiece right now about bringing the club into the, the next 100, 120 years? It's certainly a cornerstone of, of the wider strategy, absolutely. Um, you know, for us, we, we, we've we got to grow turnover in a sustainable way. 
it's very, very difficult to do so in a, in an aging stadium, um, particularly one that is of you know the, the sort of age that Pataudry is at 119 years old. So, you know, I, just a, a very simple example. You know, we've got hospitality facilities which serve a purpose, but you know, in reality, are are now very dated. We've got the back of the Richard Donald stand in the in the in the the, the internal concourse areas. There are nearly 30 pillars that fill that space. It's very difficult to use that effectively and turn that into something that can be revenue generating on a, on a non-match day, never mind creating a fan zone in there on a match day. So for us, it's trying to create flexible spaces that are modern, that are bright, that give us the opportunity to do a load more, whether that's from a corporate perspective, whether that's from a community or a fan perspective, so that we can you know, drive better fan engagement, better match day experiences, better community engagement. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we are very much a community club. We're at the heart of the community. We see all the fantastic work that the community trust does. If we can pull all of that together into a, into a facility that is purpose-built and meets all of those requirements, then I think we're in a really good place. And we'll just kind of maybe develop on that theme a little bit further, Rob, if that's okay. I mean, one of the main justifications um, for moving to a new stadium, this has been the case since, you know, God, Lawyerston, Kingsford, now the beach, sure. has been... In relation to increasing our revenues as a result of kind of new facilities or upgraded facilities, can you give just the supporters any kind of sort of idea about what sort of facilities we have in mind to help generate those additional types of revenues? And do you think that the beach location versus, for example, Kingsford or elsewhere might actually help that further as well? Absolutely. You know, Gary, I think my view is in the four years I've been here is, you know, I think I think the city seems to, for some reason, and I don't quite know why, but for some reason, the city almost seems to have turned its back on the sea mm-hmm. and looked inward. And, you know, if you think about it, going back to the 50s, 60s and before then, you know, that was where a lot of the city's income from a fishing perspective came from. Now it's where a lot of oil and gas and renewables and wind, that's where, you know, so much of the city's wealth has come from. And my view is let's look out and let's embrace the sea and what better location than, you know, um, the the, the beach site could we ask for to build, you know, a, a fantastic new stadium. So, you know, if I think about hospitality facilities, what I'd want to see is, and again, we've been working closely with the architects on this, is a, is a stadium that, you know, as people have, will have seen from some of the drawings and the renders, has a north-south or more of a north-south orientation rather than the sort of current east-west orientation that we have. That's very much more in keeping with um, stadia around the world. And then having some fantastic hospitality facilities on the eastern side, on the eastern seaboard, looking out to sea. So you'll have a view of the pitch on one side, but you'll be able to look out to the to the North Sea um, uh, over on the other side. And I think, you know, that on a match day would be really special and very, very unique. Um, you know, we see the, the the steel's just gone in this week at the new Everton Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got a view. They'll have a fantastic view over the Mersey. I think our view will be much better. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's something that we need to embrace and something that will really set us apart. And then if we can create, as I said earlier, those those multi-purpose spaces that tick a fantastic box on a match day, but then can be transformed to deliver something on a non-match day that keeps the stadium and the entire environment busy. That's what we want because that that in itself then drives footfall. And the the whole idea of regenerating the beach and redeveloping the city centre master plan and reinvigorating the city starts to come to life. 
Do we have any indication about what sort of ideas we might have around that? I mean, I know that, for example, Hearts, as part of their redevelopment stand, have got a, a really, really good like restaurant that's available, I think, five yeah. days a week. Um, I know they market it as something like a castle view, which I think is maybe up for dispute, but is there <laughs> is there, um, is there plans to do that type of thing, potentially? Things that can help the club generate revenue Monday through Friday, for example? Very much so. Yeah, no, we've done it. We've uh, we've done a huge amount of work on on what the different hospitality offerings could be. Um, one of which is for sure. I saw this fantastic example over in in Ghent in in Belgium not so long ago, where they actually run a Michelin star restaurant, for example, mm-hmm. in the stadium Monday to Friday. But then that facility transforms itself. It's not a significant transformation, but it then becomes the premium hospitality offering. We know from talking to our friends at Hearts just how well their restaurant offering has helped them through a challenging period of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you can see the castle or not, I know is up for debate, but um, they've done a fantastic job with that. Um, and so that that in itself has given us plenty of ideas together with what we've seen elsewhere in, in, in Ghent um, and, and other locations. We've done a lot of work on the hospitality, different tiers. We want to make sure that we can cater for, you know, the trends that we're seeing in hospitality, which tend to be, far more fan-friendly, far more relaxed and contemporary offerings. Um, you know, I think there's still a, a, a real opportunity in, in the Aberdeen market for, you know, your fine dining, three or four course meals, sit down to the corporate big tables. But I think there's very much also a strong desire to see far more contemporary offerings, bowl food, you know, people dressing down, yeah. more open spaces, et cetera, et cetera. You see that at Stadia right across the world. And um, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be catering for a, a, a similar offering. Similarly, you know, we're looking at how best we can deliver things like a fan zone. Um, and that to me, you know, I consider that part of our broader hospitality offering, whether that's in the stadium itself, you know, in a premium GA area, or whether we cater for that, for example, um, through the ballroom. And, you know, we've had a fantastic experience at the ballroom with the fan zone a couple of months ago. We were amazed at the uptake in a very short space of time. It sold out in in, in three days. Um, the manager put an appearance, Willie Garner and various other people were there. And I think fans were really blown away and they really enjoyed it. And that that's really what it's about as well, is being able to get people to come down earlier and enjoy, you know, a considerable period of time in and around the stadium on a match day. Yeah, and we'll maybe come back on to some of the guests and the features there for um, that are away from hospitality per se, and they're, they're more around the kind of day to day fan experience. We'll maybe come on to that in a, in a few minutes or so. But sure. one of the other main justifications for for a new stadium, and again, this goes back historically; it's not just exclusive to the beach. Is is around you know the ongoing cost of maintenance at Petaudry. Now, five years ago, the previous chairman put that number in the region of about you know half a million per annum. Um, yep. Presumably, that's more now. Um, can you kind of give, and this is a question like a lot of people have always come up with, and I don't think there's ever really been an answer to it. Can, sure. you, can you give us an idea about what that half a million is made up of? Like, what does that constitute? First and foremost, you've got some staff costs. You've got people who maintain the stadium, whether that's people who are, you know, an, an electrician, a groundsman. I was at the I was at the ground just yesterday, and and uh, I must say the pitch is looking absolutely fantastic. Um, the, the the guys do a, a, a terrific job on that. Um, but you know, you've got pitch maintenance, you've got electrical and plumbing work, you've got floodlights, um, various other lighting um, uh, things you've got to deal with around the stadium. There's seating, and we know the challenge is not only in an aging stadium, but you know, when when particularly you know some clubs visit the the scale of the damage that we see, particularly in the away section, 
to the seating. So that's an enormous job, particularly where, you know, we know the concrete's um, in, in not in the best of shape. You know, there's high-level high, high level, uh, work that's got to be done on the roof. Um, there's steel work maintenance. You know, you, you put all of these things together. We, we've got to meet um, not only all of the latest legislation, um, but we've got to meet the requirements of an annual, annual structural survey. So there's always stuff that's going on, upkeep. Um, there's painting and joinery. There's turnstile maintenance. We've got, you know, a lift in the Richard Donald stand. Um, the lawnmowers and the tractors and all the, you know, the high lift equipment, that all needs maintaining. There's um, safety and security. There's alarms. There's CCTV. There's cleaning. Um, there's the equipment in the kiosks that need maintaining. There's the kitchens um, that provide all of the food. Um, you know, all of this has got to be done, and all of that's got to be done within the context of a of an aging stadium. So, um, you know, I, I use an example on this: the South Stand roof that carries currently all of the the signage for Texo along the top of the South Stand roof. That signage has been up there not only for Texo but various other brands over a number of years. All of the metal facade, the aluminium facade behind that is now really like a sieve because it's been used so many times. That's got to be replaced. So that's not an easy job. You know, that's really high up. So you've got to bring in the right equipment with people who are sufficiently skilled to replace all of that and then put the signage back. So it's all those sorts of things that have got to be carefully considered. Whereas if you're in a new stadium, that might just be LED. And that's much easier to maintain. Um, and you're not putting boards up and down and, you know, um, all that sort of thing. So that's just one example, but there's a there's a huge range of of things, and I think it's quite easy to to think you know you just you know the end of the season comes and you lock the doors and you know you open up open them up again on the on the next first day of this of, of the next season. But that's that life's not like that. There, there are some you know real big projects that go on all the time. I can just imagine. I can hear right now already listeners screaming at the the, the stairs now about you know the, some of those costs there you've just talked about will still be there in a new stadium in terms of pitch maintenance and. Uh, sure. and, and all that kind of good stuff i guess the context needs to be put into around the aging facilities within which you're having to work within i guess that's where we see the potential improvement on that maintenance exactly as i say that you know the led example is, is is just one of those um but you know everything in an aging stadium is harder to maintain you know you're having to compensate for broken concrete or you're having to do things twice or you're having to do you know because the underlying underlying foundation of something um you know just isn't of a standard of a modern standard it, it is literally you know 100 years old much of it we'll wrap up just this the segment which is kind of really talk about cost with just one further question this is something that's actually kind of been quite pertinent this year as well um we saw in your recent interview about the Texo sponsorship deal that you kind of made mention about our general reluctance as a football club to potentially get involved with like gambling sponsors, for example. And I know that generally speaking, they're kind of almost being phased out to an extent anyway. But can we rule out the likes of, you know, NFT crypto links in terms of like funding for the stadium or just the club in general, actually, more more pertinently? There's been huge issues with this in recent weeks. Yeah, I, this this is certainly a, um, a, a sector that's been really interesting to watch and see how it's evolved. You know, they're, they're quite distinct but they're also very interlinked, NFTs and, and, and crypto. I think some clubs, certainly who got in quite early, some have done quite well, other, others less so and have, have run into quite a lot of trouble. Um, but I think for many, you know, the bubble has now well and truly burst. Um, you know, we, we've taken a, a very prudent approach. We discussed this at board level um, and we've not made any concerted efforts or moves in the sector at all. We've been approached 
probably a dozen times by different players in the industry wanting to, to um, do a deal with us. But, uh, you know, for us, it's been more about trying to understand what the sector is all about. It's, it's fairly complex. Um, but I think for us, I don't see either of these as being a part of the stadium funding project at all. Um, could we have an NFT program in five years' time? Yes, possibly. Not linked to the stadium, but linked to um, something else at the club. Yes, possibly. But I think there'd have to be a lot more, a lot more stability, a lot more transparency, and a lot more certainty. I think before we we were to consider something like that. And I was pleased that the board got to that decision. Um, it was certainly the right one and we'll continue to take a very prudent approach when it comes to, to NFT and crypto. This is a slightly wider com- wider question, sorry, around the funding element because it talks more around the, the, the council involvement um, potentially. So obviously the SNP Lib Dem coalition, they kind of published their policy documentation a couple of weeks ago um, and in it, they indicated that a priority for the for the new council would be working with the club to deliver a new stadium, but without using public funds, except where, and I'm using my inverted commas fingers here, collaborative working is mutually beneficial. Does that language cause the club any concerns around whether the council are going to be willing to contribute towards the project from a funding perspective? Have the council indicated to you guys what they believe that collaborative working looks like? And does our base case involve council funding towards the build costs or are we looking at doing this on a purely self-sufficient basis no this this is something that we are looking to work directly with the council on i I think go back one step i think as you know as part of a of a wider regeneration project and we really mustn't lose sight of this because that's what this is and the potential to become this this beacon if you like for for of sustainability um you know an example of aberdeen's net zero ambition uh, in the stadium could allow us to tap into funding sources that, you know, would otherwise not be open to us. Um, I, I think there's an opportunity as part of a of a wider community sports complex and working closely with the council on that, that we can benefit from economies of scale. And, and there is there are certainly areas where collaborative delivery, if you like, of, of elements of the stadium um, are, are under review. That's exactly what the outline business case and the work that's being done around that with the stadium um, architects, ourselves, the council, their consultants is looking at. Um, you know, if you if you take an example around, for example, food or ticketing kiosks, um, you know, if there was a situation where it would be the south stand of the stadium, if the kiosks that were servicing the south stand of the stadium we're able, we're able to open on both sides so mm. that, that on match day they could service uh, our fans and on a non-match day when, for example, the ice rink is open and there are 1,500 season ticket holders watching um, the ice skate, the, the ice um, hockey team, that the, that the kiosks can serve those guys. Those are all the kind of economies of scale and things that we, we're, we're looking at um, to make sure that we can make it you know, affordable, deliverable and and really cost effective um but also effective from a from an, a day-to-day operational perspective is is how i would answer that and i guess that this is probably a, a question which puts the cart before the horse a little bit but in terms of compromises you know what what compromises in terms of design or other elements are the club willing to to make to help bring the council along on that journey towards you know for example some additional funding towards the stadium cost itself um 
I, I don't think it's necessarily about compromise. I think what, what, what we are very happy to do because we are heavily community focused is to say, you know, there are large parts of Pataudry today and a new stadium down the line that can, that can be utilized for community led initiatives. And we're seeing more and more of a demand for this, um, you know, particularly in the, in the post COVID period. If I look at, you know, an event we put on at Cormac Park just last week, it was called Fair Play for All. And we had 80 children from four different schools across the city come out and learn everything from some STEM training to first aid to football to some mental health uh, awareness, all delivered by our partners um, who support the women's team, the Scarlet Tendeka and GAC. And that was just delivered over the course of a couple of hours at Cormac Park. You can take a project like that and scale it up and deliver it to a far larger audience with additional modules and a whole range of things in the context of the stadium. And, you know, it's a fantastic way to engage young kids. You know, they got really excited. I saw one, one young, um, young girl walk in and she said, this is my dream to be here because this is where the club train." And I was thinking, well, imagine if we took you to the stadium and delivered the same thing, you know, what you'd be thinking about it then. So I, I think it, it's, it's less about compromise and it's more about trying to find complementary ways of, of working together. I think that's the interesting part for me is about understanding what the counts mean when they say collaborative working practices, yeah. you know, because I think when a lot of people see that, that potentially triggers these concerns that, you know, we have to potentially have like a running track, for example, around the, around the pitch um, in order to help the council in terms sure. of attracting, I don't know, like athletics events or something like that. Yeah. And you kind of go, I think if you speak to any Aberdeen fan out there, that would be the absolute antithesis about what they would want to see. Um, no, and, 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 and we agree. I, you know, this is certainly something like that is not, uh, not, not at all um, on, the, on the table for discussion. There's fantastic facilities at, at, at ASV. Yeah. This is about making sure that, you know, the stadium delivers what we require uh, first and foremost from a, from a football perspective. But can we open the stadium to create opportunities for the women's team to play more, for... I don't know, Scotland under 21 games to play because it's going to be a very new and a very modern stadium. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a, a number of opportunities around that. Um, uh, you know, and if you've got an adjacent ice rink um, and, and a supporting leisure facilities, it suddenly starts to become a really interesting environment and a, and a, and a precinct that, you know, people want to come down to and enjoy. Uh, the outline plans for the council uh, from the council indicated that the likely footprint for the new stadium would be in the area to the east of the Broad Hill. It's that area that's currently taken up by, I guess, the cricket pitch, the beach bottom, the beach ledger centre site. Sure. Is that footprint set in stone in relation to the master plan? Has there been any consideration, again, to the land that the Doubletree Hotel, um, which has been empty now for a long time, sits on? Um, that That's council land, as far as I'm aware. It would appear that it would appear to a lot of people looking in from the outside that that's a potentially a more suitable space. Has has there been any consideration about looking at that? There has. Um, you know, when the council first approached us, whatever it was, over a year ago, um, both, both the sites were, were, were looked at quite carefully. But I think in, in determining the best location, you know, the, the council themselves had to consider a number of, a number of different factors. Um, one was that that hotel, whilst it might be dormant now, may yet well come back to life, particularly as the beach is, is redeveloped. I think there were some concerns and, and a lot of consideration given to the impact of a stadium on the nearby residential area. 
um, on the on the let's call it the south site. Um, there are obviously existing facilities there already with the likes of Transition Extreme, et cetera, et cetera. But I think fundamentally um, as well, there was a real desire from the council to try and link any new developments that were happening at the beach to some of the existing facilities like the beach ballroom and the leisure centre. And whilst they might not be that far away, having the stadium on the north side made a lot more sense in that context. So that that's pretty much how we've ended up where, we, where we're at. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it fits and it works. Um, and I think, you know, we can, we can certainly make a very strong case for the, the fantastic views that we're going to have out to see um, whether that was on the, on the north or the south side. Um, I think there's a fair bit of consideration and I know there's a lot of additional work going on, but I think also from a, from a roads perspective, I think it also made a fair bit more sense to be uh, on that northerly site rather than rather than to the south. So that is effective right now, set in stone. It's that site. That that that, that graphic, um, that that CGI render that's been doing the rounds um, is is what all the focus is on. Yeah, I don't, I don't personally, I don't see that changing. I think that's very much the area of of focus. There'd have to be a um, a real sort of change in in view and. And, and thinking for it to, to, to move from there would be my my take. Okay, let's move off the site. Let's look at stadium design. Um, this project's been on the go for well over 20 years now. Um, I think I'd speak for, again, the majority of fans, we, we don't like doing that on the podcast. We don't try to pretend we talk for everybody, but I think most people would agree with this, that I think it would be a major, major disappointment for a lot of people if we ended up with what you would class as being a bit of an identical stadium, similar to yeah. many others within Scotland and further afield after this period of time. An, an iconic design was featured heavily in the survey responses that the club received what are the what are you envisaging at present in terms of what that what that could look like and and, and what what can we expect in terms of this idea about it being an iconic design well you know I'm, I'm pleased to see that 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 featured as high as it did in 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 the responses because that's very much our thinking as well there's you know we as i said earlier we could we could build a uh, a, a, a far cheaper and, and highly cost-effective stadium by going with a sort of you know identical stadium, but that's going to lack everything that we are uh, uh, about as a club. Um, we are determined to build a, a quality stadium um, that has got to meet our objectives. The, those are for me fundamentally our atmosphere, its comfort, um, its safety, and its sustainability. I think those are the four things that are, are, are most to top of mind. I think. Being on the coast will help us deliver that kind of iconic positioning, um, which we know fans are keen to see. And I think if we can get the external structure right, um, then you know we will be very pleased, both from a club perspective, but also from a fan perspective, at what one what one sees as you arrive. And then you know, as I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, there's going to be an enormous amount of consultation with fans about what we want to see internally. So that once you've passed through the doors and you've come into the stadium, you know, you're starting to see and feel the types of environments that you're, you're, you're hoping to see. But for us, you know, a quality stadium, as I say, is, is about atmosphere, comfort, safety and, and sustainability are, are the priorities. Yeah, let's, let's, I guess let's touch on that in terms of the interior of the stadium. Um, and I think you maybe kind of just answered it already here, but is the plan to kind of consult with supporters around interior design concepts, a, a, you know, a key driver for a lot of fans. And I understand that the club has to take a, a real broad approach with this because there's so many different pockets of, of, of fans here. You've got families, you've got 
you know, I was going to class myself as being younger, but that's um, that's being very kind to myself. But people who want a certain match to experience, you've got families, you've got people who just want to come along, want to sit and watch the game, and that's it. You know, there's all these different things you need to take into to consideration. Our key driver for, for fans is going to be things like, we touched on it earlier on, steep breaks like there are at Tyne Castle where you're right on top of the players, potentially safe standing areas, etc. I, I take all of this as in the, as in the pot for, for consideration. Very much so. Um, you know, as as we said with with Kingsford, you know, consultation with fans at the right time is is a really important part of the the whole design process, and that's that features on all of our timelines and Gantt charts in terms of how this thing plays out, particularly of the internal areas, because those are the ones that you know fans are going to utilize on a on a on a day to day basis. We're obviously you know we're keen to get that underway. But, you know, I, we, we've got to manage expectations from a timing perspective and there's no point in getting that going too early. We've got to have a little bit more certainty around the project and then we can kick those into gear. We, we've worked really closely with the likes of Everton around their people's project. It was really interesting. So they were a bit further behind on their planning um, and we were further ahead, um, albeit for Kingsford. But they were a long way further down the line on their fan consultation piece and, and we hadn't kicked that off yet. So we were able to help them, for example, on some of the some of the planning related questions that they had, um, and then we were able to ask a lot of questions about how they went about their fan consultation. That was really interesting. Um, so a, a number of other examples like that. Um, you know, our architects have been closely involved um, in all of the design work around Brentford, and they've come away with some really interesting experiences. Um, from that and, and, and the input that they were able to get uh, to, to garner from fans. Um, so this is very much top of mind. Um, you know, just I think last week or the week before, met with um, a large group of our disabled supporters. It was more to talk about, obviously, their experiences at, at Pataudry and what we can do to enhance and improve those. But we talked a little bit about the new stadium as well and, and trying to make sure that we... Um, cover off and, and uh, engage with them as well as to what you know a new stadium is going to have to cater for in terms of their you know quite varied range of of, of requirements. So very much top of the list. When um, I you know, I kind of say watch watch the spaces as the project progresses. This is it's not directly linked to stadium design, but it's it's a question again that comes up time and time again. Um, can we expect to see the club kind of lobbying um, government, local authorities around the ability to serve alcohol, for example, at any new stadium? Um, you know, when you see the likes of the amazing supporters bar at the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, that's just ridiculous how long that, that runs for. It's And if you've ever been to a game in England, if you've ever done any of the kind of like hospitality in England, etc., it's hard not to be frustrated that in Scotland, we as supporters still seem to be treated like children in, in this regard. And this could also be a significant generator, a revenue generator for the club as well moving forward. Is this something the club are going to try and try and work with the authorities on? Gary, if I if I think about the lost revenue that's <laughs> you know as a result of of, um, of of beer sales in particular, it's uh, it's it's a scary number. So, yes, is the answer. It, it's very much on our agenda. We've already started asking um, questions of key political stakeholders and and and, and influences. I think what we've got to be honest with ourselves about, though, is that it's going to need more than just, you know, Aberdeen Football Club's take on this. Um, the sport as a whole is going to have to play its part if we're going to see the change um, that we're all after. Um, I remember when I, that experience I had over in Ghent when we were looking at their restaurant and the stadium and everything else. 
I had a real chuckle. Um, I was sitting there with Duncan Fraser, our, our former chief executive, and um, tapped him on the arm, and I, I said, "Look, look down the look down the aisle." And there were two ladies sipping on a glass of prosecco just as we kicked off, or as the game kicked off, and it was like it just all looked and felt so felt so foreign. Um, and you, you think, you know, when you go to Hamden and um, also not to Hamden to um, to Murrayfield, and yeah. uh, I was there for the for the Scotland Island rugby not so long ago, and you know, everybody's sitting, enjoying themselves, having a pint. You're sitting in amongst you know fans. It's 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 a very different experience altogether, and. Um, I think as a, as a sort of middle ground for now, as we as we work our way through, you know, the lobbying and and, and the work with the other stakeholders, I think creating a, a supporters bar is going to be the right next step. Um, creating that environment, environment we saw what the the fan zone was able to achieve, um, and and that was a relatively simple concept, but it shows that the demand and the interest is there. So. Um, we'll continue to develop and, and progress the fan zone into next season, working with the ballroom, looking at opportunities um, in and around the stadium where possible, um, but certainly looking to build that in as a as a fixture um, in the new stadium for sure. Very much so. Excellent. Just the last couple of questions, Rob, um, you'd be pleased to know. Um, the chairman's comments in the Scotsman last week indicated, I think we could be looking at the, the, the beach stadium potentially being anything up to five to six seasons away from being uh being ready and i think that that puts us a little bit further out than i think the 25 26 timeline that we had i think from the agm it's still a uh, that's still a significant period of time away um which leads to a couple of questions which i guess first of all how do we how do we mitigate for potential changes at party politics on a local level because let's be honest these things always happen and in in the short to medium term, it means obviously we're still going to be at at, at the old lady for the interim period. What what plans does the club have now to try and improve the match experience within the confines of, of what we've got to work with? Oh, that's a that's a it's a great question. Um, you know, for, for, from our point of view, I think if we can build it any sooner, we, we will. I think we've got to be be honest with ourselves again and say, look, these are unprecedented times in terms of what's going on, you know, globally, whether that's from a COVID or a, or a Ukraine perspective or a supply chain perspective, but looking at things at a, at a more local level, you know, the previous and the current administrations of the council, we know are determined to deliver on the city centre master plan and the, the regeneration of the beachfront as, as quickly as possible. Um, the next local elections are only in 2027. So, Hopefully by that time we're either well underway with the construction of the stadium or we may even have it completed. So in the meantime, you know, we are we're meeting with the Red Shed um fans in two weeks' time. Um we're going to be talking to them about what improvements we can make um to the Red Shed in particular. Um we're going to be looking to run, as I said earlier, more fan zones. Um, we're opening up the Richard Donald stand upper. There was talk of that closing and sort of driving more scarcity, but we're going to open that up for families and groups and more entertainment. And I think hopefully with the easing of, of, of COVID restrictions, you know, things are just going to get back on a bit more of an even keel. There'll be a bit more of a sense of familiarity. I think we'll be able to, you know, more opportunities for fan engagement with the players, opportunities for them to sign more autographs, be more present, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I mean, it's it's been an incredible two years and, and and challenge for the club, financial elements aside, just just to try and operate in in any sort of sense of a of a normal environment. There've been so many things that we wanted to do, be that with fans or with our sponsors and corporate partners that we've had to say no to because of the restrictions. 
so hopefully those th those are now you know pretty much in the in the, in the rearview mirror and we can um we can move on to you know a, a far more normal existence and you know um hopefully off the back of a, a good pre-season in, in in spain and some new signings in the door in the next couple of weeks you know hopefully uh you know back on track for a, a really exciting and positive season at Petondri. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you anymore on that particular front, Rob. Um, Rob, listen, it's been it's been a pleasure to get some time to talk to you about the stadium plans. Um, thanks for taking your time out of trying to find that 80 million quid to uh, to come and talk to us <laughs> about, about how things are going on. That. Is there anything else you'd just like to, to, to say to our listeners just before we to, before we wrap up? No, you know, thank you for the opportunity, Gary. Um, it's it's been a pleasure to, to talk to you, and as I say, happy happy to join on on, on another occasion or two. And, and uh, I know you know um, Dave and, and others from the club would be would be happy to to have a chat as well. You know, I, 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 as I say, I, I'd, I'd ask the fans for patience as we work our way through this. This is this is a massive, massive undertaking. It, it's uh, it takes a lot of time and effort and energy from from everybody at the club that's working on this. And at the same time, we're trying to make sure that we, you know, we put out a competitive team for for the next season, um, and all of the day to day operations continue. Um, but uh, we look forward to next season. Um, we, you know, it's it's coming around much quicker than one realizes. Um, we're competitive football from the from the ninth to tenth of July, as we know. Um, but uh, a huge thank you to all the fans for their support. Um, we've got the uh, keep your seat uh, deadline coming up. Uh, tomorrow evening um, on season tickets I'd ask fans to to support the club as as much as they possibly can we appreciate families and um, the fans are going through some really challenging times um, if there's anything that the club can do to help or support anybody you know they can they can pick up the phone and and we'll do our best to support them as well so a huge thank you to everybody and um, yeah thank you for your time Gary excellent hey listen not a problem Rob appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on the Upset Football Podcast stand free stand free all the best cheers so as we mentioned above, and as Rob highlighted in the session, if you believe in the Dons being kept in and around the city, the beach area, as Rob stated in the in the session we did with him, the best way to make your feelings known to your local councillor is to get a letter into them expressing your support for the project. Now, we know it can take a little while to sit down, pen a letter, so don't worry, we've got you covered. If you head on over to our link tree, that's linktr.ee forward slash podcast you'll find a link to a Word document. We've already actually prepared a template letter for you. All you need to do in there, stick your address or your counsellor in there, sign it off, post or email it over to them, and you can do your bit to try and help keep the Dons in the city. That's linktr.ee forward slash ABZ football podcast. In other news from Patojo this week, now, truth be told, at the time of recording, Saturday evening, boys, eh? who's got nothing better to do on a Saturday night? Like I said, watched youtube watched january through march and so this is audio only but for you guys if i start twitching at any point my apologies we know exactly why it is there's been very very little in the way of news from ab24 this week which naturally means there'll be a whole host of announcements come out between now and tuesday when we publish because that's just how these how these things work interest in the albanian international ilber ramadani that we touched on last week still appears to be solid but as yet no deal confirmed, although he is with the Albanian national team. So perhaps something might get finalised upon completion of their round of Nations League fixtures this week. The only other noteworthy item, I think, that came out of the club this week, apart from the fact that they were selling whiskey glasses and wine glasses, which when you're waiting for them to announce a signing and you get that little tweet notification and you're like, yeah, here we go. Here we go. All right. 
you say that, but I mean, let's just spare a thought for our poor Dundee supporting friends. That's true, absolutely. <laughs> but just seen... in general, or based on their announcement? <laughs> Have you seen it? Have I seen it? Of course I've seen it. It's, fucking, it. it's incredible, isn't it? Was I the only one that was really hoping that Mark McGee was just going to pop out of the crocodile? No, if you look at <laughs> the comments, everyone was hoping that that's what it was. <laughs> New mascot and manager. Cove Rangers, of course, on the lookout for a manager. Maybe one for, for maybe it's their turn to take the hit on the Mark McGee roundabout. That would be uh, that would be some bit of business for Mark McGee, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd be well received by all the Aberdonians he'd be playing this trade in front of. Absolutely. <laughs> I tell you what, Danger Man Mark Reynolds will love going through another preseason with Mark McGee again. <laughs> um, Honestly, how the hell have we ended up talking about Mark McGee in this week? I have no idea. It's what we do. It's what we do. He's um, only present in the Pattersphere, isn't he? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We should, we should just rename ourselves the Mark McGee Football Podcast. There we go. That'll br- <laughs> That'll bring in the listeners. The only other noteworthy item from the club this week was the publishing of the... Is publishing the right phrase for this? I mean, it was a video. Is that right? Aye. Yeah? Fuck it. Yeah. Let's yeah. go with it. Of the Jim Goodwin, Graham Hunter interview on Red TV. Now, this was the interview that Graham alluded to with us on the show a couple of weeks ago when he was with us. Gents, just general thoughts on the interview itself. Um, did you get anything new out of that, uh, that hour-long session between uh, the manager and, and Graham Hunter? Not a great deal for me. It was just kind of, you know, Graham obviously does an absolutely tremendous job uh, with these interviews, and 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 Jim's a uh, Jim's a very compelling speaker. I find even when he's not necessarily um, making you know game changing, groundbreaking, headline making points, I could probably listen to the man talk for four hours and not get bored. Um, but I don't think it was particularly revelatory from from what I seen, uh, aside from obvious things like the. The, the the mentioning of the left-sided centre-back that might be coming in and, and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was more of a, a kind of reassuring, reaffirming hour spent with a man who I still trust uh, at the wheel of the football club. Um, but it didn't necessarily... You know, nothing major came out of it. I don't think, for me personally, that completely changed my perception of the current state, just... Good to hear him reaffirm an awareness of the problems and what needs to be done. Yeah, for me, it was very much um, with Graham's own twist on things, uh, almost carbon copy of Graham, of sorry, of Jim Goodwin's initial interview when he came into the club um, with our own kind of in-house uh, media people. He's yeah, he's a very charismatic, compelling talker, as Andy mentioned, and I think it's it's good for me that he's seen a lot of problems that I felt we had and that he will work. It left me in no doubt that he's going to work as hard as he can to address those and not leave us in the situation we were in last season, uh, namely with balance of squad and also the overall fitness of the team, which I thought was lacking big time under under Stephen Glass. Um, you know, it's easy to say all the right things, though, at the same time. Um, Stephen Glass came in this time last year, and we were all raving about what the, he was saying. And then he went and signed Jet and Jacker, so... You know, actions speak louder than words and all that. Uh, we'll see what comes. I'm also glad to hear that he's, you know, fully embraced the structure and he's working closely with Stephen Gunn and Darren Mowbray to identify the right talents, right abilities, and also right characters. I think that was a very important part that he's going to do all the, the due diligence to make sure we don't have players who are going to down tools or not fight when, when the going gets tough. It's not that it wasn't good. It's not a criticism of anyone that took part in the interview in any way, but... 
I'm kind of at the point where there's a little bit of deja vu, like Gavin said, you know, Stephen Glass spoke well. It's difficult to it's difficult to, to make a mess of a situation like that, to be honest. So I'm kind of at the point where I just I don't really need to be hearing the words. I just want to see the actions, which doesn't mean that I don't believe in what he's saying at all. I just feel like we're we're in another potential season of transition. So I'm already probably a little bit frustrated with the, the way things ended up and how we're probably going to start this season off. So I've probably got a slightly shorter tether than I maybe did before. So I'm just at the point of, you know, saying the right things, fine. I genuinely believe him, but I believe Glass. You know, I believe Glass and everyone else worked really hard. I don't, I don't think they came in and thought this would be a piece of cake or they weren't that fussed. So I'm kind of just taking it with a pinch of salt and I just want to see, I just want to see the fruits of their labours, to be honest, whether that's not necessarily in this in the transfer window, because I may or may not get names I like or recognise, and it's kind of irrelevant. It's what actually, what do they put out of the pitch, you know, when the, when the league starts and, and what do we actually see as some sort of identity as to how we're going to play. That's when I think all of these things will either, you know, either people will, yes, he said he was going to do it, he's doing it, this is brilliant, or we're going to be a bit where we were before, where he's saying all the right things, but I'm just not seeing it yet. So t- time's going to tell, and we're probably a couple of months away, at least before I can actually start to tie up what he's saying with what we're seeing. A few points I did think were quite interesting. I think this is where Graham's interview technique, and I know that, you know, I see a lot of people giving Graham some stick for his interview technique sometimes, and I don't necessarily buy it. Um, I know that sometimes the interviews can be um, lengthy, um, but if you listen to our podcast, you know that that's not a fucking concern to us. So, um, but I think sometimes it works on a level because I think Jim Goodwin's a very shrewd media operator. I think he's very polished. He knows exactly what he needs to say at any given opportunity. I've thought that since he started at Aloha, to be fair. He continued at St. Mirren. He's done the same at Aberdeen. He doesn't tend to give an awful lot away in his interviews, generally. You saw it a little bit in the St. Johnston, the post-match against St. Johnston, just at the tail end of the season, where he really let rip about the, the performance that day. Graham Hunter touched on it. But I felt there were a couple of moments where he did let slip a couple of tidbits that I did think were interesting in the sense that it seems very clear to me he's going to go with a 4-2-3-1 slash 4-3-3 formation. He touched on that, that we will play with a back four. So that puts any ideas that we might be trying to look at setting up in a back three completely to bed, I think, which was interesting because I think that a lot of us who've watched Aberdeen for the last 12 months um, and who watched Scottish football generally, we probably have thought that someone like Declan Gallagher, for example, is best suited to playing in a back three. So that instantly raises question marks about Declan Gallagher's potential future at the club, especially because later on, Gav's punching the air here, um, <laughs> especially because later on, Graham Hunter specifically honed in on David Bates and they had a big conversation about David Bates and Jim Goodwin was very clear about the fact that he felt sorry for David Bates having to play on the left-hand side of the back of the centre-back pairing because he's not left-footed. And he almost effectively said, David Bates will play on the right-hand side of a centre-half pairing now. This is why we're going for a left-sided centre-half that we're going to be excited about in quote marks, and we'll see who that ends up being because that should have been, if you follow the timeline from the interview, that should have been done and dusted by now. Clearly, that's still dragging out. If Bates is the the right-sided centre-half, we're bringing in a left-sided centre-half. That puts big question marks for me about Declan Gallagher's future at the club. Um, I think it was telling for the St. Mirren game when we slotted Considine back into the team that David Bates was the right-sided centre-back that day. Mm-hmm. I think that was, if anything, maybe a thinly-veiled reveal of what Jim Goodwin's plans are. I completely agree. I think that David Bates has been 
um, hard done by in a way. I forgot actually that he played left center back when Ross McCrory was playing there. Mm-hmm. I thought Ross McCrory played left side because you'd think Ross McCrory maybe being the more comfortable footballer on the ball. No, it was Bates. Would have been in that, but it was Bates the entire time. And it does leave him in difficult situations where you can't come in onto his stronger foot because that's, you know, running into danger. And so he then has to use his left foot and he's not as effective with that um, in terms of passing. Um, personally speaking, we'll come on to a number of games which <laughs> are a reflective of why I feel this way. I mean, I would shudder to think if we ever built our formation around Declan Gallagher or to, <laughs> or to cover his significant weaknesses. Um, mm-hmm. If he, that guy doesn't play for us again, I would not complain. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, the, the best football of his career is, is undoubtedly for me coming a part of a back three, whether it was at Livingston with Halkett and Lithgow or the run he had in the Scotland team where you know you could see he was clearly quite far out of his depth um, but he had those kind of I, I don't want to say Braveheart, that's corny but he had those blood and thunder moments where he was the last man throwing his body. He could do what he's good at doing in that, in that setup. it was just very much yeah. kick, tackle head Done. Like you didn't have to do anything else. Yeah. All the things we thought we were going to get with Declan Gallagher, and then wait for the Motherwell games coming up in this segment. The other bit that I thought was interesting um, from the interview was when they delved in a little bit around Goodwin. Kind of took a little bit of accountability, responsibility, perhaps holding his hands up that perhaps he got his initial approach when he came into the club wrong, in the sense of maybe being too honest with players who he didn't fancy and were not going to be here after the summer and telling them too early. I mean, it was interesting. He said he wouldn't change it. He would still do it again, but he admitted that perhaps that was a mistake. Um, I thought that was interesting because that's something I think a lot of us have talked about in in that last six or seven weeks of the season where it felt that a bunch of guys were just like not interested. And there was a lot of us worried if we got to, if we had got dragged into that kind of relegation playoff spot, you're potentially relying on a bunch of guys who you've basically told, I think you're shit and you're not going to be here. <laughs> after summer and it's like that, those aren't the guys I want to talk with. and there was some really really telling quotes I think the one was I thought I was dealing with grown-up men which I thought was like really telling and I don't know who that was necessarily aimed at I think one was definitely about Jet because there was a point made about I told some guys if you do this and do that you'll still be in my thoughts and I thought I was dealing with grown men and some of them just didn't do it so that was clearly Jet because that was clearly that conversation about you need to get yourself fucking fit and then I wonder who some of the other ones might have been about. I, I don't want to speculate. Maybe you three may wish to, but I thought it was interesting that it maybe shows up the the dynamic of the of the dressing room that, that Goodwin inherited at that point. Well, I mean, I think there's a possibility that maybe one of them might be how will I call him? C. Ramirez? No, no, <laughs> no that's, that's that's too obvious. Um, let's call him Christian R. Nice. Um, I, I think it was interesting that he compared it to the time when he was at Huddersfield and I think there was a change of manager and I think Lee Clark went in as manager and told him that he's not part of his plans and Jim Goodwin said fair enough but you know I don't want to leave because they got a good contract and Lee Clark said like listen well you can stay and do your work and we'll see what happens and I guess maybe Goodwin thought that would be the same situation for some of these players that you know you're been told uh, you're not in my plans but you've still got six weeks two months three months whatever it was to proved me wrong and evidently a lot of them chose not to even try so um he's still a very young manager I guess that'll be a lesson he'll have learned in man management but I I think you can understand the theory of being honest will get the best out of the guys um I think personally it does reflect more on the character of the players in, in question rather than Jim Goodwin as a manager 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a bit of naivety, naivety on on Goodwin's part for sure. Um, but if you're a guy like Jet and you're looking at the last few months of how his Aberdeen career panned out, um, particularly with Goodwin coming in, and like I, I, I did laugh when uh, Goodwin mentioned. I, I think he even used the word fat when he was when he was talking yeah. about uh, players not being in the best condition and stuff. So I did laugh at that. But you look at his last few appearances in an Aberdeen shirt and wonder who on earth is going to go after him next. Who's going to give him a lifeline? Who's going to give him a contract? Um, I'm sure someone down in England who hasn't been paying attention to what he's done up here will um, at some stage. But you'd think that... Um, not to question the professionalism of Mr. J. Emmanuel Thomas, but you'd think a professional football player would go, okay, I've only got six weeks here or whatever, uh, or Ramirez or whoever we're speculating on, uh, would put themselves forward a little bit more and go, hey, here's what I bring to the table. But I guess we don't have a squad of adults after all. Yeah, I see that Jet's actually now like it's some sort of specialist gym set up in London, like designed for professional footballers. I noticed this on his Instagram stories. And you know when you're like, why not just be doing that like, when you're actually employed by a fucking football club. He had all this for free and he was getting yeah. paid to do it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, surely you would make the most of that. Even if like Goodwin comes in and says, look, you're just not going to play. I don't like what you bring to the team or don't bring to the team. Fine. <laughs> make the most out of your remaining weeks. Like Andy says, if it's not to get into the team, it's to get your next job. Um, or take your bag of cash and go and tear it up in Dubai, I guess was option B. <laughs> So maybe actually, I'd have gone for option B if I was in his his situation. Um, who knows? Is this uh, is his wee brother still knocking around the Highland League? Oh yeah, I don't think so. No, he he ah. left Huntley, didn't he? I'm not sure. He was at Huntley for a little bit, and then I think he left there, and I don't know where he went to. I think he went to. I think he went to a Highland League team. I feel like we need to do this now. <laughs> Mister Fuji shall investigate <laughs> while you're um, very good. <laughs> while you're looking that up, I think um, Jim Goodwood said, and it's he's completely right. Players. At clubs like Aberdeen, where you've got your own training facilities, and there's absolutely no excuse not to be fit. So the fact that we had a number of players and Jet being, you know, probably the easiest target because, well, we all saw him. It does speak again of the character and the standards that I think were that were there, and they weren't high enough. And that's another thing that's I think key in the fact that Stephen Glass is no longer the manager of Aberdeen. He went to Devon Vale from Huntley, his brother, um, Caden Imbert Thomas. But I can't see if he's on their retained list for, for next season. Their family fucking love a triple barrel name. <laughs> absolutely. What I liked as well about the footage of Jet at that gym was, right, he was like doing the pan around the gym and everyone's like fucking knocking the pan. And he's clearly just sitting on the bike. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> like he's not even sitting on it like peddling you know you could tell from the movement he's not sitting there giving it someone like i can do that at the same time he's just sitting there <laughs> fucking hell anyway some um, boy some boy and there we go i think will that will that be the last time we talk about jet on this podcast you think oh no no he's I he'll be get, he'll he'll be getting in this part yeah that's true that's right absolutely oh yeah yeah in the city well i mean that and a few other things so if that rounds us up i think on the jim goodwin interview it's probably an opportune time have a breather, grab a cold one, because trust me, you're, you're going to need one. Join us in a couple of ticks as we take the time to bring you part three of our 2021-22 season review.
Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. Now, before we launch into part three of our 2021-22 season review, we'd just like to give John, Andy, Callum a shout out for your contribution to the ABZ FP Beer and Coffee Fund. We see you. Your bread's appreciated. If you'd like to help us keep fueled in beers and coffee, head over to ko-fi.com slash ABZ Football Podcast. The link is in the description. Buy us a beer or coffee. It is absolutely appreciated, valued, and necessary, eh, Gav? Just for everyday life now. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Part three, the 2021-22 Aberdeen FC season. What happened to my title for this episode? I don't know. What happened to it? I believe I requested this be called uh, the Adam Montgomery Show, hashtag quality over quantity. Well, we could call that if you want. There we Let's go. go. Let's go with it. The Adam Montgomery Show, hashtag quantity over quantity. Now, quantity over quantity. Quantity over quantity. <laughs> quality. Have you ever done this before? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Andy Montgomery Show. Hashtag quality over quantity. There we go. We'll get it right eventually. Now, I think we described part one as feeling like, you know, it was the equivalent of sticking your balls in the vice. Uh, part two was the equivalent of then sandpapering them. Part three feels to me like it's going to be like taking a wire brush and Dettol to them. Correct? This is a very um, graphic imagery going on here. I don't know what we're going to do for part four. I feel it might have peaked a bit too early. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about this. Uh, this was this was a horrendous like little stretch here. At least by the time you hit the months of part four, I think most you know terrible months by all accounts. But most of us had probably accepted by April or May that this was just going to be pish for the rest of the season. Here we still had all the garbage about oh we're only two points off of four flags for about eight consecutive weeks, and uh, you were listening that- to the podcast, weren't you, Andy? <laughs> It was everywhere, though, wasn't it? It's like, yeah. hey, you know, we might win this. We might we might get into Europe. And it's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> People kept on calling us negative bastards. And I was like, go back and listen to this. We'd finish every every segment by being like, but we're still just two points off Europe, lads. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the, the latter half of the part two's um, episode, you know, we'll post all the defeats in Dens Park when we think it's all over. And then we get the three good results. And it's a real mixed bag up till there. And then, you know. Some alarm bells going off, even in, even in some of our victories, especially that last Dundee game. And then, but you think winter break, we're going in. We now should have a pretty clear idea of what we need to strengthen. Let's go again when we come back from the winter break. That was it, wasn't it? It was like we, like I say, when we wrapped up part two, the winter break had just been pulled forward because COVID. Mind that. Um, we'd just beaten Dundee at home on Boxing Day, and it was a bit iffy. But we'd gone four wins out of five in December, including Etu Vertanen having his sole exhumed from him by Scott Brown at McDermott Park. I do like to do a callback if we can. We were sitting in sixth spot, probably about two points off of Europe, I assume. Um, that's where we were. And I think most of us were like, right, let's put that inconsistency behind us. Let's get some shrewd January acquisitions, more on that later. And we'll be ready to rock and roll and we'll head for a European spot. I think that was generally the consensus. I think pretty much, like you say, we'd been almost sort of disbelief that we'd been that rank and you were still basically basically right in it. So I think you genuinely did think, okay, we've somehow dodged several bullets to get to the, the window. We'll fix a couple of bits and pieces, and you know, that, that'll be enough to get us going, and we'll we'll get something tangible out of the season. <laughs> Obviously, again, another spoiler alert, didn't work out like that. <laughs> <laughs> so New Year's Day 2022, the notifications are pinging off on your 
on your phone. Aberdeen FC Twitter is just launching into some action. First bit of news, Connor Barron was recalled from his loan spell at at Kelty Hearts. Done really well at the Runaway League 2 leaders. Signed a new two-and-a-half-year deal with the club as well, tying him to his boyhood team until the summer of 2024. But perhaps more significantly at the time, on the same day, it was confirmed that Matty Longstaff's season-long loan at Aberdeen had been cancelled and our inspirational number 44 had been returned in his original packaging to Newcastle United, having made the grand total of five appearances. I can't even remember him playing five games, but there we go. Three starts, two subs, each one of them more memorable than the last time. Oh, just uh, a run for the books this, wasn't it? And, you know, the wee part in shots later in the press about, you know, the long ball football and, you know, I'm used to playing a different style of game. And it's like, okay, well, we're used to playing football, Matthew. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you. Uh, And then by all accounts, he went down to Mansfield and became the best player in League Two. So, you know. (laughs) Hashtag levels. No, this was a, a great personal source of enjoyment for me the the Matty Longstaffing because being a Scottish person living in England it's far from a unique experience that I've had but you get used to every single football fan you meet calling your league a farmers league and it's you know oh you these players wouldn't cut it in the English conference and all of this stuff and then you see like a once (laughs) I'm just going to indulge in some schadenfreude here a once touted prospect like Matty Longstaff who scored twice against Man United from about 30 yards and you know he comes up here and he spends more time you know, it felt like running away from the ball, uh, point throwing his finger around like he's Scott McTominay playing for Man United. Um, <laughs> and that's a horrendous comparison, I'm sorry. But yeah, I got a great sense of enjoyment out of this, living as I do in Newcastle. Um, all the best to him for his future career. But that parting, those parting shots in the press and everything else, the guy could easily have just gone down as a really forgettable Aberdeen player who wasn't suited to Scottish football, didn't make the adjustment, maybe had some technical qualities, but he didn't have the whatever else he needed to impart those on the game here or whatever the reasons for his failure were, just pish. Um, but because he said some dumb <laughs> things in the press, unfortunately, we're going to be talking about this guy for about five years now. So yeah. sorry, Matthew, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> it's the thing. It's it's the Greg Wells story all over again. If he just went away, he becomes player from England number 2,376 who just didn't adjust to Scotland. But on account of those words, what, 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 what was it again? You know, the style of play didn't fit my didn't fit my game and blah, blah, blah. And the ball, I was watching the ball going over my head and we're all sat there like, I fucking wish the ball went over our midfielder's head a little bit more than it does. <laughs> wish we didn't just piss about playing side-to-side passes. On account of all that stuff, that's why we'll probably end up writing a jingle about him next, next season. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to the point even where like, you know, a match that means nothing to the average Aberdeen fan last week, the League Two playoff final, sees pretty much every Aberdeen fan on the planet rooting for Port Vale against Mansfield, purely just out of spite about my long stuff, which in itself is fucking hilarious. I mean, you even had people now like rewriting history about James Wilson and being like, always rate James Wilson, thought it was fucking magic, despite the fact, you know, we had him twice and he was pissed both times. <laughs> but now... An absolute hero for slaying Matty Longstaff's Mansfield Town. <laughs> fair play, Jimmy. Fair fucking play. Matty Longstaff's final appearance for Aberdeen was that absolute shocker of a second-half cameo that lasted 17 minutes at Tanadice that culminated, I think he tripped on the ball, which eventually led to United getting a corner kick from which they scored the only goal of the game from. That was the last we saw of him. Absolute fucking dug meat. 
I will be glad to never hear the name Matty Longstaff ever again. This was then compounded on the 7th of January with the news that fellow loanee Austin Samuels had also had his loan spell cut short as he returned to Wolves, having made seven appearances for the Dons, three starts, four as a substitute, scoring. And you don't need a calculator to work this one out. The grand total of fucking zero goals in his spell at Aberdeen Football Club. Funnily enough, the Dons deciding not to activate that option to buy. I think I've said this more times than I really need to, but I go back to that first interview with Glass and Steve Gunn and all the chat about how recruitment was going to be measured. It was going to be, we're not going to sign players. I'm probably paraphrasing, but we're not going to sign square pegs to fit round holes, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to sign players on loan, especially just for the sake of it to block who can block the pathway for our own young players. Austin Samuels comes in. He's played up front his entire career and we stick him out wide left. Good, good job, guys. Good job. Although, right, this is the thing. At the time, I was like, okay, at least we've realized these boys aren't up to it and we're getting shot at them early doors. And you're like, okay, a couple of outgoings early in the window. It's bound to mean a couple of boys coming in, isn't it? Eventually. Yeah, well, well actually, yes. The very next day, 8th of January, the Don signed someone. It's 2021 Mac Herman Trophy winner, Dante Povara. You might have made up the title of that trophy. I don't think I have. And I feel I feel bad going in about this. Um, and it probably sounds more patronizing than it's meant to. Um, he's a New York City FC Academy graduate. He spent the previous season in the American college system. We covered this one in a lot of detail at the time it happened. I don't really want to go into a lot of detail on it now. It was a punt. Still is a punt, isn't it? Let's be honest. It was and it is. And again, yeah, not to, we're not being critical of him per se, but the, the state we were in, it was not a signing that you, th- but it wasn't a signing for the first team, basically. No. Uh, well, A, because of his background and everything, and then it turned out he was broken because the first Instagram picture was like him getting his hernia fixed. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about so, that. You know, never mind the fact that he was a young guy coming from the States and this is a totally different kettle of fish for him. He wasn't even fit. So yeah. He still had to have an operation I had when I was four. Well, you know, a lot of people were sort of instantly pissed off that, okay, we finally signed someone and he's broken. Brilliant. Excellent. Good work, boys. <laughs> and, you know, but it's okay because there must be another conveyor belt of heroes coming in for the first team. Oh, no, no, wait. It's another example of just, you know, the, the comms side of the club not really being up to scratch, for your be honest, because what you could easily just do there is say, we've signed Dante Polvara. He needs to have this surgery done, but then, you know, he'll be available in a couple months' time. Instead, as you say, we literally see on his own personal Instagram, you're like, oh shit, what's happened here? (laughs) I think the other part about it was the the messaging wasn't great for this. Okay, I think we were maybe quite, uh, it seemed like we were quite pleased to have got someone over the line. We beat off some competition, apparently from Europe and I think Hibs, because we always beat Hibs to sign fucking players. But it was also one of these, it felt like we were announcing it as if to be like, this guy's going to come into the first team. And it kind of felt like it needed to be a little bit more measured to be like, this is a a project, a prospect. He's going to come in early doors. He's got this hernia thing. He needs to get sorted out. Um, he will then be put into like the either the, the I don't know the 18s or the development squad. We'll see how he goes. It's a project thing. Blah blah blah. And I think the way it came across was like, yeah, Danny Pavard, and they were like, boys, what the fuck? Like we need players. And it was it's about the messaging and perception and you know what that what that leads to because it prompted so much discussion on social media just in that 24 hours. And a lot of people were clearly panicking about the fact that this was going to be like our only recruitment of the window, which in itself is nonsense because it was the 9th of January. But at the same time, fear not, Dave Cormack came back onto Twitter. It was the first time we'd seen him for a little while. 
uh, to tell everyone that the window was only just open and we should all, quote, breathe. Words that are going to come back <laughs> to bite us heavily on the arse later in the windows, it turns out. And he wasn't done there, though. He took out, he took time as well out to address rumours by targeting, what's the boy's name, uh, the boy on Twitter? Is it Harold or Ingolfson? Yes, that's right. <laughs> to, to call him out about the rumours that Teddy Jenks was going to follow Austin Samuels and Matty Longstaff out the door at the time as well. And, uh, you know, I think... If I'm being honest, I mean, Teddy Jenks could have probably left in January. It would have made a blind bit of fucking difference to how our season panned out in the end. But, you know, I think at that point, Teddy had come on to more of a game in this in the latter half of the um, the 2021 portion of the season. And it was, was concerning the right word, probably not. But you, were th- you thought there's more to come from him here. So I can see the reasoning behind yeah. quashing that rumor if it was, in fact, just, you know, made up. And of course, bearing in mind at this point, we're still in the winter break, so there's nothing happening on the pitch. Eight days later, the 17th of January, 2022, the day that we've all been waiting for, when the Ronnie Hernandez saga (laughs) came to an end with it being confirmed that the Venezuelan right-back had signed a permanent deal with, wait for it, this will shock you, Atlanta United. A real surprise move, eh, lads? Yes, I can see we're all sitting down, which is really, really fortunate. Yeah, yeah, otherwise there'd be four (laughs) of us just collapsing. (laughs) <laughs> I think I can remember like the week beforehand or the episode beforehand us talking about how he had gone into the MLS draft despite the fact he was still contracted to Aberdeen and I think was someone Noel not chatting about that I think Noel tried to clarify that he like in America their contracts are owned by like the central MLS yeah, company right, and yeah, then they're like yeah. drafted out so like it like there's this overarching company that pays all the salaries it's not actually the clubs themselves it's all very, yeah. very confusing. Well, the, but um, the, the clubs do pay them eventually, but they're contracted to the central body. Yeah. But someone was explaining, we couldn't figure out. Hand it that, out. Well, it was like, does that mean he's, do we A, know that this is even happening? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, have we agreed? Or probably not. Does that mean that it's all legit and the club just hasn't? And I, I remember having been totally confused. I'd forgotten that actually, yeah, he basically appeared as available for selection in the MLS before anything had ever actually been announced that. That's where obviously we knew he was going to go there, but it was actually confirmed. What an absolutely, I was going to say wild series of events, but the whole Hernandez gate was a wild series of events. <laughs> That's nowhere near the wildest part of this. It's, not, it's absolutely not, you're right. Um, I, I was a tiny bit surprised given how little of an impact he'd actually made at Atlanta mm. in his time on loan. And I think we'd had a couple of people from America suggesting that the chances are he wasn't going to be signed on a permanent deal. Um, but I guess it was the the fitting end to this whole this whole chapter in Aberdeen's history until we get that link up with Juventus and he rocks up there. No, this wasn't <laughs> the fit, this wasn't the fitting end to the saga because the fitting end to the saga came with the press release that we did. Ah, yes, yes, of course. Because of course. then we did then we released this hilariously over the top press statement that was a little bit the lady doth protest too much. Methinks we even dragged poor Kevin McIver out from his accounting cupboard to throw some sparkles on this particular brand of dog shit to try and tell us all that everything was above board and we'd recovered most of the money we wanted and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, usually when we sell a play, it's very much like a two or three line press release. You know, we've come to terms with Club X. He leaves having played X number of games, blah, blah, blah. We wish him all the best in his future endeavours. Anyway, before you know it, we're back into action. Coronavirus crowd restrictions are lifted with a couple of days' notice, which was helpful, um, for the visit of Sedco, 5088 to Pathology for the first time this season. This was an entertaining one, wasn't it? Um, it was for those of us that got into the ground on time. Who didn't make it into town? I believe Graham had some issues that night. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah t- technical issues. The technical issue being I'm an idiot. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, the technical issue. Yes. Yeah, the Don's unlucky not to take the lead on seven minutes. Teddy Jenks, still here. One of his efforts smashing off the post before the game burst into life on 20 minutes. Hayes' ball over the top, releasing hedges in on goal. Having beaten old man Al McGregor to the ball, the man who did do walking away brought the hedges down on the edge of the box, looking to all and sundry like a penalty kick and a red card. But Kevin Clancy, the resident idiot in charge that evening, decided no, no. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see. The visitors go straight up the park and score through Haji, which again was one of those like awful, awful goals from us to concede. A, a ball swung into the post, a guy making a, a run in, no one picks it up. Terrible stuff, reminiscent of the goal we conceded to Celtic, I think, early in the season with... Uh, uh, every goal is what you mean to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, having watched all these games, I can tell you there's that's not the... Uh, it's not a lone incident. No. Absolutely not. But into the second half, I actually thought that even had a pretty decent performance by us in the second half. Um, we eventually get an equaliser from the spot after a blatant handball by Alfredo Morelos. Remember him? That even Kevin Clancy had to give. Like, it was that blatant. They had to be like, yeah, that's a pen. I can't find a way not to give that. Um, Lewis Ferguson dispatching that one, despite the fact the ball was moving on the spot, which again, everyone in the stadium saw. And the idiot <laughs> in charge still didn't decide, you know what, that probably should be taken back again. I actually thought he would have taken it back after he scored, just to be a dick. Yeah, that's right. Like, okay, well, you've scored. Oh, but the ball was moving, oh. so we'll have to take that back. Here's my get out of jail card. Yeah, yeah there exactly. We go. Yeah, here's another go. Um, more was to follow through when Scott Brown expertly drew Ryan Kent into a couple of yellow cards. It's sad to say, one of the highlights of the season, seeing Scott Brown wave Ryan Kent off the park, much to the delight of the Red Army. I mean, after that one, probably some disappointment that we didn't win that one but I thought again there were signs of optimism and positivity about what we could do I thought the overall performance that night was actually really good with the probable exception of you know we don't get the penalty which is undoubtedly a penalty um I don't care what anyone says I mean the evidence is in the fact that Al McGregor just you know quietly marches back to his goal and if he thinks he's been a victim of injustice he will make the person very much aware of it and he just you know, sheepishly walks back to his line um but it's a classic happening where we you know we don't get the break sure but then we just switch off completely yeah. rangers go straight up the pitch um the ball ends up to kent and yeah swings on the ball and all of our defenders they just you know obviously don't think it's possible that our rangers player could be on the pitch wanting to get the ball as well and it's horrendous horrendous goal but yeah i thought we played well and um definitely deserved at least to get a draw I think I was disappointed that when Kent goes off, because I think there was still about 20-odd minutes left to go, and we really didn't push at all to get the winner, and that was um, that was disappointing. But yeah, first game back against the champions, it's not a bad way to, to start. It definitely showed there was a lot of fight within the team, and I thought there was some quality as well on, on show. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know far from an alien thing, an Aberdeen team uh, raising performance levels against Rangers or whatever, <laughs> but like taking just the... You know, it's tough to say a renewed sense of hope or whatever coming out of the Christmas break but you know the slivers of optimism coming away from the previous performance and then having the break and coming into this um, it was broadly encouraging because you know the, the refereeing <laughs> it's Scotland <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you look at the, the, the penalty incident and then the goal and it's like okay uh, you can use that as as 
something to ultimately feel more optimistic about the performance because if we get a penalty, it's a completely different game. Maybe Rangers like adjust and play a little bit better themselves. But like even coming into the second half, there was a period, if I recall, where Brown in particular was all over the pitch. Yeah. And getting on the end of things, I think he had two chances, a volley and maybe a, a header. header. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, I mean, again, no coincidence that Scott Brown is raising his game against Rangers. Um and has Celtic cramps against Celtic. There you go. <laughs> Death taxes and those two things. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, th- this season, uh, at, at some point during the period of months we're, we're talking about here, became a season where it was like, you know what, I'm going to purposefully forget the football and remember the the, the banter. Uh, so Ito Vertainen, of course, prior to this. And now Ryan Kent getting applauded off the pitch. Tremendous. But yeah, I... Decent performance from us, absolutely. And, you know, coming, I didn't have a whole lot of hope going into this break, but coming out of it, I was like, you know what? Maybe Stephen Glass is the boy. <laughs> Terrible prediction. Glass has got us playing. <laughs> the Dons are back. Um... <laughs> Can... <laughs> oh, man. Can we all remember as well that after this game, Rangers wrote an eight-point letter to the SFA complaining about refereeing? Let's just take a minute to remember that that was after this game that they did that. There's a club who's not very good at reading the room. <laughs> you just absolutely got away with one. Now's not the time to be complaining about refereeing. But they've had a fucking great weekend, haven't they? They've had a good weekend this oh, weekend. Aye. I fucking hope yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they've probably bl- blown their summer transfer budget on bunting, haven't they? So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here's fucking hope. So. There's almost more imaginary money where that came from, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and we know where that goes. <laughs> uh, a day after that Rangers game, it's announced that Prince Jack Gurr had departed the club, um, heading back stateside after just three starts. Farewell. Farewell, sweet prince. Absolutely. Did we mention the fact last week that we think that his dad was trolling us on Twitter? Him and Matty Longstaff are mates. Yeah, I think the army. So, I, yeah. I think that might be where that comes from. I think it is actually his dad, um, which is top stuff. Anyway, there I think we go. Jagger is a Jordy, if I'm not mistaken. So, he is Jordy, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, there we go. Yeah, uh, went back to Sacramento in what MLS seven pyramid level? <laughs> don't fucking know. <laughs> pyramid level be upside down? I don't know. I'll see him playing across the road from me in Gateshead in a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> No time to rest, though, for our champions. Next up is our first ever meeting with Edinburgh City, awaiting in the Scottish Cup fourth round of Pataudry. The Dons sweeping the league two aside away comfortably with three goals to nil. Goals from Hedges, Ramirez and Lewis Ferguson sealing our spot in the next round in a game that also saw Conor Barron make his first team debut coming off the bench at halftime and doing well, although, you know, against League Two opposition, so hard to really make a, a judgment about just how good the young man could be. Jet, though, remember him? We spoke about him earlier on with the miss of the season on 82 <laughs> minutes, contriving somehow to smash a ball off the bar with a goal gaping after some fine work by Funzo King of Ojo, it's fair to say, on the left flank. And that one set up a fifth round tie at Motherwell. More on that one later on. I don't think there's much to talk about that Edinburgh City game, is there, apart from that jet miss? File the overall performance under professional. If there is anything, a metaphor more suited for Jet as a footballer, he is literally just too laid back. Open goal. I mean, I think, I think it's the worst miss I've ever seen from an Aberdeen player anyway. No, it can't be worse than the Miles Story one. No, Miles Story was trickier. Miles Story comes in with a little bit of pace and it's a little bit behind him. 
It's an open goal from one yard out. <laughs> this is an open goal from four yards out. We're splitting hairs here. I tell you what, John McGinn's header on Wednesday night. Jeez, oh, that's the worst I've ever seen in person. I've decided, given the moment, given you know, if he scores that, we're right back in the game. It's a, oh, oh, just thank God for the boy sitting two to my left with his bottle of Bucky. <laughs> Offering it to my four-year-old son at halftime. <laughs> God bless you, Motherwell. God bless you. On the 24th of January, hold your hats, we make a fucking signing. The Dons announced the arrival of highly rated Dutch youth international Vicente Bajouin on a four-and-a-half-year deal. That's, <laughs> from a club like Aberdeen, that's faith. But that's, and that's one of those I'm always like, they must know he's good. Because if we end up with a, <laughs> like a donkey for four and a half years, like... May I remind you the the player before that we, we dished out a four and a half year deal was, was Ronnie Hernandez. <laughs> we had recovered most of our money on him. To me, it just screamed, okay, whose money are we laundering this time? <laughs> <laughs> Signing the young Dutch slash Colombian from Edo Den Haag in the Dutch Erste division. Apparently, we paid a fee as well of about 450000 for Vicente. Beat off competition from, you guessed it. <laughs> Sit down for this one. <laughs> Hibs. <laughs> I don't know if... I, do the papers just make that up now? Is it just like an in... I think it's just an in-joke in the papers now? That came straight from Dave Cormack, didn't it? Well. <laughs> right, let, let's move on swiftly before we get ourselves into more trouble with the club. <laughs> Same day, it was announced that Niall McGinn, please be upstanding, um, would leave the club having made a total of 358 appearances over his two spells, scoring 87 goals in the process. Another piece of suburban business that went well, um, giving Niall McGinn a year's extension to his deal, wasn't it? It was an odd one at the time. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that McGinn was excellent, by and large, for, for Aberdeen, I think it was fair to say that it wasn't really vintage McGinn that we got back second time round, was it? So... It was a, it was definitely a strange decision, given that it didn't appear that it was with a view to getting him involved in, like the coaching or anything like that sort of setup behind the scenes, because he wasn't really necessarily old enough to hang up his boots. So uh, yeah, that that's one that just didn't really work out well. And it's a bit of a shame that Niall McGinn's time at Aberdeen ended like that. If he'd maybe left the year, the season prior, you you only really have the good stuff. I think he showed at Dundee. He's still got something to offer in this league maybe not at the level we want to be at but the thing about McGinn for me is he's a player that needs game time to get back into his form he's not going to be a guy who's going to come off the bench for 20 minutes each week and produce the same level quality that he is capable of so yeah if he's not going to be in and around the team or be an integral part of it then yeah it was a bizarre move especially when there's all the chat about how we want to integrate more youth and not block pathways again it was just odd all round and yeah it wasn't surprising that he left yeah, I mean, the only when the, when the one-year deal came around, the only thing I could possibly think of was that perhaps they wanted to keep him around a little bit to help some of the younger players yeah. uh, pass on some wisdom or whatever. But then, you know, I sit there and look at the squad and go, okay, who are these Who are these upcoming young, exciting wingers that he is <laughs> passing this this stuff on to? So yeah, like like Graham said, it's a, it's a, it's a real shame his Aberdeen career just kind of farted away in the way it did, but absolutely a modern club legend and Shame you had to go and play for Mark McGee for five months. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't deserve that. No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, this won't be the last you hear about Niall McGinn on this podcast. That's all I am going 
to say on that one. A day later, it was the second visit of the season to Paisley to face Jim Goodwin, St Mirren at the time, sitting in eighth spot, but undergoing a bit of a mini resurgence after the resumption of football after the winter break. This match coming in part of their run of five unbeaten games at that point of the season. Now, after the optimism of December and the Rangers and the Edinburgh City games, this was a performance that reverted all the way back to the very worst traits that we'd shown all season. And nothing, nothing performance with little in the way of grit, determination, fight, thought, ability, desire, determination, whatever. Against a well-drilled St. Mirren side that saw a fine effort from Conor Ronan. It was a good goal, to be fair. It was a good goal. Uh, Seal the points for the home side. We failed to muster one, (laughs) one solitary shot on target despite the fact we had over 70% possession that evening. Truly, truly miserable. As you say, not uh, not vintage by any stretch of the imagination. Nothing much in the way of memorable incident, bar the Ronan goal. And it's a good finish from him. It's definitely a sign of the ability the guy has. But at the same time, he is given all the room and all the space in the uh, St. Minnan Stadium, whatever it's called these days. No one anywhere near him. I think it's Ramsey's closest makes no effort whatsoever to close them down and make it things difficult and yeah um when we go one nil down i don't remember us creating anything in the way of chances so file it and again under pish yeah it was particularly disappointing this performance as well after the the rangers showing and then the you know the edinburgh city game it, it's obviously one you expect to win three nil uh but at the same time, you know, Aberdeen that have turned up for the majority of this season, it's exactly the kind of banana skin that we might have tripped over. So to get the professional performance, that's the perfect word for it. To get through that was was quite encouraging in a way, even though, you know, you're going to expect to win. And then we just came out with, with it. I think I had a dark night of the soul living through this match. It was just nothing is absolutely the right word. Um I think it, it was Dean Campbell who played left back and yeah. he looked like he'd been lodging with Declan Gallagher for the past few months. He was you know, <laughs> completely jittery. is not even really the word, I don't think. He was having absolute kittens on that flank the whole game. And it was weird as well because he's previously looked all right at left back before. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, you know, there were signs at certain other points where maybe that'd be his best position and maybe that's how he finally breaks it. No, pish. Uh, <laughs> the poor lad. <laughs> the poor lad. It's like he's somebody, you know, somebody a lot of us have been rooting for to, to kind of succeed in everything else. And this performance was just kind of grim. But yeah, I mean, 70% possession or whatever, zero shots on target. I mean, it's, it's the kind of one that, you know, people with multiple spreadsheets probably have lots of green arrows in the right places, but uh, no, on the day, garbage. Just thinking that the heat map for that match would have just been a red blob around about the centre circle with the occasional pass-back debates just to put him under a bit of pressure for the banter. <laughs> <laughs> Always good for the crack. <laughs> Who knew that our centre midfielders were such banter merchants? Give it to David on his left foot. See what happens. <laughs> Fizz one into him. There's a man on him. He'll enjoy this. <laughs> um, next up, our home fixture was St. Johnston fell foul to Storm Malik. It's fair to say that the support was beginning to get a little bit edgy as we entered the final week of the transfer window with no sign of improving upon our attacking options in particular, despite the fact that Marley Watkins was suffering an injury that would see him miss much of the next couple of months, leaving us with striking options consisting of Christian Ramirez, who at this point was still you know, trying. And Jet, <clears throat> Ryan Hedge is very much already stuck to head 
out the exit door. And indeed, on the 30th of January, one day left to go, it was confirmed that the Welshman had left to join Blackburn Rovers for an undisclosed fee, presumably 20 quid and a, I don't know, bag of balls or something. Hedges having made 86 appearances for the club, scoring 18 goals, which actually is it's a better return on goals than I recalled. Um, a useful player, certainly Ryan Hedges. Did well in Europe always, I thought, as well. But hey, there we go. Some money in the door. It's another attacking option down. We get to transfer <laughs> deadline day. It's all going to happen, isn't it? It's all going to happen. No, it's fucking not. The only acquisition made on the day, Adam Montgomery, a 19-year-old midfielder slash defender on loan till the end of the season from Celtic. What? Like, all the chat... Like, we did this at the time and still I'm like, what the fuck? All, all the chat around the club at the time makes it clear that we were still working on deals until late on that Monday evening. Couldn't get the ones we wanted over the line. The official line is we then made a decision that we weren't just going to bring in people for the sake of bringing in people. Um, if they were so far down the list of our targets, we weren't going to do it. But suddenly our squad is paper fucking thin in critical areas as we head into the business end of the season. This for me is where our season went absolutely down the fucking toilet. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to like we said a million times, the whole point of the structure is it's kind of to a degree irrelevant if you trust the manager or not because you've got a system in place to get the right players and you'll get someone in to coach them and set them up. So whether they thought Glass was the man for the job in January or not shouldn't have impacted the signings based on my understanding of how it's all supposed to work. That's the safety net you have, that the manager basically doesn't control everything. And if he goes, you're not really starting from scratch. So either, I mean, who knows what happened? We'll never, no one's ever going to come out and be honest and say, look, here's what went wrong in January. So if they didn't trust Glass, then he shouldn't have been there in January. Um, and if they did trust him, then this is an absolute shambles. They got hung out to dry because he may or may not have been able to make something of the second half of the season. But with that squad and the way it was and that business in January, it was almost academic if it was Glass or AN other. We were just totally up against it. It's, yeah, that I think that killed us more. I know, because we, like we were talking about, you know, Rangers games and bits and pieces. There, were, there was the odd run where you're like, these guys might be all right. There might be something here. We, we obviously need to do a little bit of business, but this might... There might be something we can salvage from this. And then that January window was just an absolute disgrace for everyone involved. And that made an already pretty tricky job for Stephen Glass virtually impossible. And I, I do th- I agree with you. I think that actually killed it. I reckon with a couple of bits and pieces around that squad, we we probably had enough to maybe not, I know the old two points off Europe thing, but I'm more thinking maybe just not secure safety with whatever it was, two, three games to go. There's a whole lot to unpack here. Um, we've talked about it. If we got to a point with targets and then decided the targets weren't good enough, simply why were they on our list of targets to begin with? Um, that's one thing. The decision to let Ryan Hedges go, who was such a key attacking threat for us. And listen, I mean, he was a classic kind of winger type player in that he was inconsistent, but when he was on it, he was very, very good. And he at least, as a presence, I think, made other teams wary of him and you know offered that kind of mental element to our side as well um it's a huge ask for Vicente Bajawan as a very young player coming to a new country to basically assume the responsibility of the sole creative attacking player so if we don't have anything 
guaranteed coming in to replace Ryan Hedges, the decision to let him go for what was presumably peanuts is, you know, pretty unforgivable. I've never seen anything to suggest he was lazy or would down tools if we said, listen, we can't do it. It just doesn't work for us. If you want to go to Blackburn, sign a new pre-contract, you can go at the end of the season, fine. And then, yeah, just to leave us knowing how threadbare the attack was, Watkins out, Jet, pretty unreliable. It was, yeah. Um, for the second January in a row, this board, I'm sure they don't mean it. I'm sure it's not intentional, but effectively they sabotaged our season. That's the, that's the brutal way of putting it. Uh, absolutely. It was uh, uh, particularly galling as well, coming on the back of the previous year's January window, uh, signing three forwards who managed two goals between them or whatever until the end of the season. And um, the, the clear holes in the squad not being addressed. And then you get to that that point right near the end and you end up signing a diddy left back from Celtic on loan. That's like, you know, we joked earlier about the, the Dundee crocodile while they're calling out for a new manager. It's, you know, it's a pretty much the same thing, except we didn't, I think an alligator would have probably been more effective at left back in bursts than, <laughs> than, uh, than Adam Montgomery was. But I know like serious questions for me, this was, you know, you, you give new systems time and you give new, structures and and when there's big personnel changes and obviously that's been the case for Aberdeen over the past few years and we're we're fed this functional model where and Goodwin spoke about this in his in his interview with Graham a little bit um about how every department's working you know to high capacity and it's all linking together and they should theoretically feed each other but then when you have and obviously that you know this is months prior to that but when you have a window like this it asks serious questions about it because well, Vicente comes in and, you know, that, that could go one of two ways. Obviously, his form was good after he came in. But when at the time of signing, it was a lad on a four-and-a-half-year contract, which thinks, wow, okay, they've either done extremely thorough research on this guy and he, it's going to work out and he's going to be someone we sell for two or three million down the line and that's the, the proof of concept of this whole system. Or we've just signed someone no one's ever heard of or seen play for four-and-a-half years and he's going to be Diddy. So a, a really, really dispiriting window at a time where we needed the exact opposite of that. Um, you know, obviously we didn't we didn't miss Matty Longstaff and Austin Samuels and Jack Gurr or whatever, but it, for me, the first serious questions about the system as a whole, and was it before or after this that we learned that Darren Mowbray didn't actually start until after the summer window? It was after this. Yeah. It, it was only in the Dave Cormack Graham Hunt interview. It That's came right. Out. That's right. So it was kind of like a domino of <laughs> yeah. trust falling uh, in the way things work. Not to the complete point of going, okay, this is garbage. We need to tear the whole thing up or whatever, but very, very worrying time. And uh, at a point where I wondered if uh, football was still for me, to be quite honest, for periods. <laughs> <laughs> well, just hang on a minute. First of February brought us a trip north to Dingwall where the sides fought out a drab 1-1 draw a debut for Vicente Bajan with Adam Montgomery on the bench Aberdeen getting an opening goal in 48 minutes through Johnny Hayes pretty tidy finish as I recall but yet again wasn't the last county equalising just five minutes later through Callaghan nothing to talk about in that game as far as I'm concerned the only thing to talk about was Gav getting irate over messages because Devlin was warming up the team 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. When I sent when I sent the the picture yeah. and Gav's phone just got snapped in half. Gav nearly had an aneurysm about that one. Presumably, that was just like to prove to HMRC that we were in fact paying Michael Devlin that he was still employed, and this wasn't some kind of tax write off. The only thing that having watched the highlights again is that we get one nil up. It's a decent goal, a decent finish from Johnny Hayes, and then Ross County break. We have plenty of players in the box. The ball drops to Callahan, and he has four beats hit the ball in the half volley and no one gets anywhere near him. So once again, no fight, no desire to defend from Aberdeen. Hashtag lovely stuff. So because if all our training drills are like defence against just like nobody. (laughs) The ball ball just gets crossed into the box and the defenders can head it away because they're the only ones that are playing the drill. Everyone always looks amazed there's a member there. of the opposition yeah, all, yeah honestly they're all looking around like ah oh, shit that doesn't have a corner park well maybe it should have been doing <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing about it is it's so fucking true it really is uh dean campbell was next to head out the door joining Derek mckinnis's kilmarnock revolution on loan for the remainder of the campaign he was getting a chance to play on the hallowed turf at rugby park i'm going to keep <laughs> doing this <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Before we headed to the Tony Macaroni to face up to Livingston side, sitting in eighth spot. As I recall, this was played in horrendous conditions in West Lothian. But things went from bad to worse for Aberdeen. Ao Obelai with a smart finish, putting the hosts a goal to the good after just eight minutes. Uh, we were denied a clear-cut penalty on 17 minutes when Lewis Ferguson is rugby tackled to the ground at a corner kick. Class clown Kevin Clancy, yeah, him again, um, failing to spot it. Maybe we should have done our eight-point letter to the SFA. Our, our eight-point letter could have been a 16-point letter by this point in the season, to be fair. Livingston were two up just after the uh, halftime interval. Poor play at the back made it too easy for Alan Forrest to break the offside trap, and he finished well past Gary Woods. I forgot that Gary Woods was back in goal at this point. Um, Joe Lewis missing out through illness. Once again, all to do for Aberdeen, a goal pulled back through Ramirez on 66 minutes. But once again, loads of possession, nothing doing, no wins in three with the visit of a Celtic side who were absolutely beginning to click into gear at this point, coming on the Wednesday evening. The clouds were beginning to darken around AB24 once again. Well, Graham just mentioned what our defensive draws must be like. We are the only team in the (laughs) league where you can literally be standing 25 yards in the centre of the pitch away from the opposition goal and no defenders will be anywhere near you <laughs> which is what happens for the um the alan the forest goal, goal. Yeah. i think you're being very generous calling it an offside trap if i'm being quite honest <laughs> more like an onside <laughs> gift um really piss poor performance i think it would cost about 25 pounds to stream it from livingston so uh that hurt all the more um like you say we get the it's a scrappy goal but it's still a decent finish from ramirez um not an easy one at all and then 25 minutes of nothing. Um, Lewis Ferguson got a good header away. That strike check saved well. Yeah. That's the one chance we create, you know. Jet comes on late on to... Is this the one that Jet like, came on and played like in centre midfield? Well, I don't think he came on to play in centre midfield, but he just decided he was playing in centre midfield. Is, that, is it this one or is it another one? I'm... I think it's this one. I think it is this one. I'm just going to go and double check that he came on in this game. He he does. They actually, There's a little kind of... Um, Stramash almost and Bajowin not flicks the ball up and Jet hits it on the volley and almost any other night it would have gone in actually. He came off the last six minutes, but I think I am right. I think you're right. I, I remember thinking, right, you play him up through the middle, you just shell balls towards him, hopefully get runners off him, whatever. And he basically, he, I'm sure you're right. I think, I think it might have been Sit Mirren actually that this, this happened. 
I think it happened in loads of games. But it's another one where Jet comes on. I think he had more time against Simmer and he comes on, seems to just do whatever he pleases, and the manager does nothing about it. I think actually you're right. I think it's Simmer and I think it was Simmer and there's the game you're thinking about. So yeah, it's again it's another case of like seemingly the there was no plan B. It was just, you know, hope that plan A will eventually work. And if not, then just let the guys do whatever they want. And that's comes back to the point I think that um, some players weren't getting called out on their bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. On to the Wednesday evening, uh, we just touched on it there. Celtic at this point have been unbeaten in the league since they beat us at Pataudry way back in October. Now top of the table and the league leaders raced in a two-goal lead in a what was a pretty whirlwind opening 20-minute spell. Uh, Graeme, you and I were at the game this evening, I think. Um, we looked all over the place. Celtic, I thought, for that opening 45 minutes were very, very good. We were ran absolute fucking ragged goals from Jota and O'Reilly had the visitors cruising and I remember at halftime thinking this could be very grim yeah yeah this won't surprise anyone uh, we were nowhere near it um because that's pretty much the summary of the season but we were yeah they were just I don't even think they were it's not like they were sort of pedal to the metal flat out either no I don't think they were they were just when I mean, they absolutely had our number popping the ball around and yeah it just felt like if Celtic came out and decided they really fancied it this could get really quite quite embarrassing and quite quickly it's the combination of a lack of focus in, in our defence you know it's another goal where the ball's popped to the back stick Calvin Ramsey Gary Woods obviously don't think that Jota can possibly be there Jota will not score easier goals than the goals he scored against Aberdeen this season yeah. um, and then you know there's no luck I mean it's what uh Riley shot that deflects off Bates and if it's one of our guys it goes like well clear of course off Bates it goes like through his legs and past uh, Gary Woods and goal yeah it was I was not there but I was remember like checking the score after about 20 minutes and seeing 2-0 and thinking that 9-0 could be uh, replicated here yeah and especially with the nature of those two goals as well especially the second one with the gigantic deflection yeah. you know you you look at the identity or lack thereof of Stephen Glass's Aberdeen. It's not exactly the kind of team that you'd associate with having the grit and the organisation to go, okay, we've lost our heads here. Let's recompose ourselves and try and find a way back into the game. And yet... <laughs> and this was the thing. This is where the whole... This is where I find the Stephen Glass dynamic really interesting to an extent because there were the, it was like after that horrendous run all the way through to October and you were like... I don't see us like having the fight. And then you go in that amazing little three gun three game run in that week against three of the better teams in the league. Then it all went to shit again. And there was a bit of character came back again towards the back end of that December run. And you're right, this one, it was like unbelievable. We actually came out after half time, came at the traps really well. Um Ramirez got a goal back from a really well worked free kick before a second for Ramirez was ruled off for being offside, which I think was pretty marginal at the time as well. I don't think it was as clear cut as, as it necessarily was made out to be. And then suddenly we were level just a couple minutes later, Ferguson getting on the end of a King Ojo free kick and Celtic were kind of on the ropes at that point. Like I remember thinking they they dropped a bit clearly. I think they'd thought game was won and they were kind of conserving energy. They were probably still in New Were they still in Europe at this point? I, I'm gonna, I think they were. Well, it doesn't really matter. Your point stands that they, they thought this was wrapped up. Yeah. Um, as we all did as well, to be perfectly honest. So, but I think they, yeah, they probably had dropped a level or two, but let's not detract from the fact that as we did in glimpses, Aberdeen looked pretty good. We came out, we we fought, we we got a couple of good goals. I mean, let's give the devil's due. It's a creative free kick that gets the, the first goal back. And then we tried that routine a few times 
yeah. got some joy from it a couple of times. Um, first goal we scored from a set piece in this sequence, I think. So um, maybe put Alan Russell's comments about becoming the best set piece team in the league to one side. Oh, I saw them this week. What a what a boy, what a boy. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a good delivery from Ojo for Ferguson's head. It's a good header from him as well. Something he's very very good at, Lewis Ferguson. Yeah, come back two 0 down to get two two. The momentum is with you to go on and and get that win. I, at the time, I was like Celtic on the ropes here. We we can really go up the pitch here. We can really do something. Like it, it, it meant it, it went back to a lot of the games we played against the better teams in the league this season. Where suddenly we can look, we were given a bit more time on the ball. We could look kind of threatening. We looked decent on the ball all of a sudden. But then typically it wasn't to last. Celtic come straight up the pitch. They score a what at the time was a controversial goal with Jota getting his second of the game. His shot straight to the ground bounced over the top of Gary Woods. At the time, I had a lot of controversy about it because it looked as though Abadah had come back from an offside position to block Bates off. But I think in retrospect now, it probably was all above board. McCoy was playing him on side, I think. But it's a marginal decision at the time. I mean, the referee, the assistant is probably guessing. He can't really know. It's it's such a fluid moment of time. We're on, the, we're on the wrong end of a marginal decision from an official. Again, Celtic leave with all three points and suddenly... All eyes are on our visit to Fir Park in the fifth round of the Scottish Cup on the Saturday, wasn't it? It was Saturday, three o'clock. And I think it felt right here to most of us that this was make or break for our season and probably make or break for Stephen Glass. Yeah, it was running out of time and out of one cup competition quite embarrassingly. So, yeah, I think we were all, like, you know, again, <laughs> we probably were so close to Europe that the league campaign wasn't actually necessarily written off who knows what could happen but I think any Aberdeen fan wants and expects you to go far in the cup competitions because realistically that's where your best chance of winning something um so yeah like I mean at this point we've not won a game in the league since coming back from the break um been pretty unconvincing in a number of games leading up to the break as well um I think a lot of doubt was definitely there in people's minds and yeah as Graham says I mean it's Stephen Glass's own words in a way I think came back to bite him when he came in and talked about what successful Aberdeen managers do. They win trophies. And as he said, we were out of the League Cup first hurdle. And the first real hurdle in the Scottish Cup is coming up. And yeah, you could get a sense that the league form was going to just continue being inconsistent. We weren't going to achieve anything particularly meaningful through the league. I mean, fourth place was as good as it was going to get. And even then that looked far-fetched. So yeah, the trip to, to Fair Park took on real, real significance. Yeah, for sure. And it was clear, I think, as well after the Celtic game that these fleeting 10, 20-minute periods of, of good play against the old firms, you know, was no longer a glimmer of hope. It was just a, a, a flash in the pan, really. Um, at no point, and obviously we'll post-mortem Stephen Glass a little bit later on, I guess. Um, but it was quite clear, I mean, probably before this point, Anyway, that whatever ideas, and I do believe that Stephen Glass has tremendous ideas for the football he wants to play and stuff, that were in his head were never going to be imparted on this group of players in an effective way. And uh, yeah, what a, what a game this turned out to be. This battle game also, I believe, was when Declan Gallagher was uh, brought back at the team. He played a three at the back against Celtic. Uh, yeah, he did. He did. We played a three at the back that evening. Um I mean, you could have told, you couldn't, you wouldn't have known it in the first twenty minutes. We were just fucking all over the place, or or maybe you would have known it because we suddenly just picked a formation out of nowhere that we hadn't played in four months. So 
Yeah, having not remembered much about it, I was not being there. I kind of did wonder why for the first goal, David Bates was basically playing left back. And then I looked inwards and like, oh, he was playing the left side of a back three. Yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> um, pre-match preparations for this one at Fir Park, not ideal. Tom Ritchie injured uh, with quite a bad injury at the time alongside Joe Lewis's continued absence through illness, coupled with an injury to Gordon Marshall, which I don't understand how the fuck that happens, but never mind. Um Meant that Craig Did Sampson, he not have any operation? It was something like that, yeah. But he got injured in training or something. I don't, I, I don't know. Baffled by this. I remember just turning up to the ground, hearing nothing about it, and it, it just came out in like the Twitter announcements, like from the club, in like the hour and a half before the game. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? Because Craig Sampson is now in as a replacement goalkeeping coach, and also because I think Jamie Shingler was the only goalkeeper we had on the books apart from Gary Woods. He yep. was on the bench, but he'd been it. Keith on loan, Jamie Shingler, he's like 18, 17, 18. Um, so Craig Sampson had, had to be registered as a goalkeeper or, or registered as a player again, sorry, to sit on the bench as well, just in case. I'm not going to lie, I really want to get my hands on a Craig Sampson issue, like a player issue jersey from that game. That is a collector's item right there, isn't it? A one-off. <laughs> it's only one of them ever been done. Would uh, would take pride of place in my editing office. Absolutely. Signed by the man himself. Um and in front of a noisy, boisterous away support, Graham, you and I were there. Certainly were. In monsoon conditions. Gav, you were on the way back from Cumbria, having picked up the little man Dylan, as I recall. A wee man Dylan, who I will point out is not named after Dylan McGeek. That's what you say, but <laughs> come on. No, he, he moves a lot more freely than Dylan McGeek. Dylan Levitt, are you a secret Arab? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a... That's a... That's a niche reference. <laughs> from you, were, you were you you were in the Glasgow area, as I recall, the Lanarkshire area. At this point, this game kicked off. You were waiting for a pee stop with a little man. Can't immediately remember, but I do remember listening to the game on the radio and listening to the opening goal and thinking, "Wow, we got the first goal in a game that doesn't happen often." We got off to the perfect start, didn't we? First time cross from Ross McCrory finds the head to Christian Ramirez, bullet head past Liam Kelly. We're ahead against Motherwell for the first time this campaign, the third time of asking. The away end goes bananas, it's fair to say, Graham. <laughs> yes, but I jokes aside, like it was ace. It I was. mean, we obviously we <laughs> crap against them all season. Yeah. Cup game, like you say, good good crowd as pretty much through all of the season, the amount of people are stuck by the sort of nonsense that was put out on the pitch more often than not is commendable. So yeah, it was it was great. And yeah, Ramirez doing what he'd done reasonably well throughout the season to date, uh, chipping in with a goal. And, okay, it was Aberdeen, it's early days, so you're not quite thinking, right, we can see this through, but you're thinking, right, like Gav said, fuck, we scored first. This is different. Gives us something to go after. Do you mind all the Motherwell boys in the corner getting on the pitch and trying to square up to the Aberdeen fans after the goal? Yeah. Mad scenes. And the stewards and police just decide to usher them back into the stand. And you know when you're like, yeah. if this had been the other way around, they'd be like, arrests all over the place crazy stuff anyway never mind is that the section of fair park that's got the kind of the motherwell young team slash crash preschoolers yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ones as well that poked lee mcculloch in the eye with a stick back in the day which was also fucking funny let's not like lie about that that was hilarious when that happened but we should have been two up just a couple of minutes later and um, ramirez put through he tries to lob Liam kelly i think to be fair it gets caught in the wind the wind was like the weather was horrendous at the time i wouldn't say he should have i think it was still a pretty difficult chance but um yeah i think it was definitely a possible it was a possibility you're right rather than 
I think he'd scored it. And I, I'm pretty sure the wind took it at the last, like... I think it looks like it's destined to, like, hit the inside of the post and probably go in. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, but not to be. But we were really dominant at this point. Motherwell looked all over the place at the back. The boys, Ojala, who'd scored against us early in the season, he'd just come back in from injury. He looked like Gav at goals on Thursday night. It was fucking horrific. Um, it's a fair comment. It is a fair comment. <laughs> um, I mean, even I got a hat-trick at goals on Thursday night, which tells you everything you need to know. But then suddenly, a deflected effort from Kevin fucking Van Veen, <laughs> who the steel man level before an absolute shit show of defending from a multiple corner. So Gary Wood's flapping like a seagull at the ball. Oh. It broke to the boy Shields, who I say smashed the home. He just basically got a foot on it for a couple of yards out. Went through about three Aberdeen players' legs on the line. And for a team whose entire season was basically resting on this match, our second half performance was so poor. I mean, like, Motherwell probably should have had another couple of goals, to be honest. Um, the Scottish Cup dream dies for another season. Where are we at now? 1992. It'll be 33 years minimum. Um, we're getting to Hibs territory at this rate. Um, the scenes at full time are clear that the Red Army's patience is now pretty much at an end. Uh, Lewis Ferguson's, you know, getting up to people coming up the stairs. It's all very unpleasant. Within minutes of full time, we had a message from one of our sources that Glass was gone alongside Alan Russell and Henry Appleu. That news was confirmed formally by the club the next morning. Was there any real surprise for any of you guys that that was the time that Glass Ball was curtailed? I think I go back to the point I made in October um, when we previewed, well, when we reviewed the Dundee game. At that point, I felt it was a matter of when and not if. So... Uh, Never saw enough over a sustained period to suggest that this was going anywhere particularly positive. So at that point, our season effectively in terms of tangible success was over and it seemed, yeah, it just didn't seem right that we would stick with this plan for the sake of it. I think it was undoubtedly the right time to go. And if anything, he probably could have gone a bit earlier. Ah, yeah, absolutely. I think... I mean, football-wise, for me, the season probably peaked with those early European wins. And when you when you have somebody coming in who supposedly has had this this great footballing education and and it's very progressive ideas, and he's brought his own staff, and they fit this this greater image of the club culture and all of this, and it's going to feed itself from the top down. Uh, when he comes in and he's got no. And there's not been any tangible signs of progress in a year or however long it was, 11 months, I don't know. Um, unquestionably, it could not have gone on any longer than this specific game. Um, absolutely an argument to be made that he hung around too long. Um, but an absolutely fitting way for him to go after this game. I mean, the defensive disorganisation, obviously, which kind of characterises his reign to a degree. Um Inability to sustain the lead after the early goal or even push on and get a second one. Just a really disappointing guy to have failed in this role, but unquestionably a failure at this point and probably overdue. After the 11 months where we, week in, week out, keep conceding stupid goals and go into so many games offering no threat whatsoever. And, you know, from that Wraith Rovers game onwards, maybe the odd exception here and there, we just didn't have any flexibility to change our game plan. He just stuck to his 
philosophy, let's use that word again, which I think a lot of modern managers seem to do, which is they've watched Pep Guardiola's Barcelona and decide that possession is the key to winning games, not realizing that the key to Barcelona was the movement of the ball in possession, not just the sake of passing the ball from side to side. Um, it would not have been appropriate at all for him to remain in position. And yeah, we had to say it was time to go. We made this point before, the strange thing, you know, Gav was saying, sort of inability to change or always stick and do the same thing. Like going back to Andy said of the European games, yeah. I think one of the reasons we had success and what was quite exciting was he was quite quick to change, whether it was yep. at halftime or before. And it wasn't just fresh legs. You know, he was taking different people on to do a different role because he was going to change how we were set up. And it was working and it was really refreshing to see. I think we were all quite surprised. Not a criticism of McInnes, but he'd been there for so long that you kind of knew what subs he'd make and roughly when he'd make them or more often than not, he wouldn't make any. And you're like, well, this isn't working. Why haven't you changed it? For a young, relatively untested manager to have what seemed to be quite a degree of confidence in himself and his squad to be making those sort of changes, like this is this is really encouraging. I don't know why it was like we got to September or something. We stopped. Yes, yeah, exactly. Just never did it again. And then every game was a carbon copy. That's why I referenced Kirkcaldy. I think that was a real mental. I think it was a mental block in terms of his belief in his. Oh, how would you call them? Like fringe players. I think Kirkcaldy spooked him about the capabilities of the guys who weren't in the 1-11 to 11, or what he perceived to be his strongest 11. Absolutely. And yeah, then I think we ended up in that McInnes situation of he's probably got a core group of maybe 14 he can trust. That's And that's that's what you see. Yeah, but then this but this is the weird thing. But then in that October run, he, he switched system. He moved to the three and it worked really well for us. And then suddenly we stopped for no reason. And... It was really odd. Like Graham's right in the sense that it was really refreshing because, and again, it's it's not a criticism of Derek McInnes. I don't know how many times I need to fucking labour this point. Derek McInnes did a very, very good job for Aberdeen Football Club in the initial period of time he was here. He probably outstayed his welcome by a couple of seasons. But Derek McInnes, how often did he decide to change system, let alone game to game, let alone in-game? It never happened. Well, when it did and he went to a three, it was utter carnage. Yeah. Exactly. It was 4-2-3-1 and this is how he set up and that's how he played. And that's how he got results. But there were times yeah. in games where he'd be like, this is not working. We need to change something. And the, the change would be to bring on, I don't fucking know, like Conor McLennan for Niall McGinn with 20 minutes to go. And you'd be like, it's, but it's like for like, you're not, you're not really making a change. You're just hoping that somebody with fresh legs can do something different. That was literally the change. Yeah, It worked for the majority of McInnes' time here. It, it didn't in the back end. But that was what was, you're right, Graham. And especially in those opening three or four weeks of this of this season, it was like, wow, like we can we can adapt, we can shift formations, we can change shape, we can do something different, we can press here, do something with a player over here, we can put Conor McLennan on up top alongside Ramirez away in Iceland and have a fucking immediate impact from it. You know, these were all things that were happening. One question I do have for you guys, just because we covered this in detail at the time when it all happened. And I think we all at the point got to the point of going, yeah, this can't continue. This this, this is probably the right time for it to go. In retrospect now, with the way that things have panned out with Jim Goodwin in charge, is there an argument to be made that Stephen Glass should have been left in situ to the end of the season and give him a run in the summer with a full, with the proper recruitment team behind him to try and continue doing what he was doing? I can see why you say that looking back, but I don't, I don't think so because... Th- things have not been very good under Goodwin, but, but that's my opinion. So we didn't get that sort of bounce we expected. But 
there's a very real danger we could have ended up in a worse off position if we'd kept Glass because other than the odd set 20 minutes here and there or we did put that run together it was garbage but we were streaky under Glass this is my thing with it we were really streaky like we would we would go four games five games without a win or whatever and then suddenly we'd go f- then suddenly we'd go five games with a win like five wins in a row which is not something we've had under Goodwin <sighs> no I, I take your point but it wasn't it is the right call the only thing that's up for debate is did it get too long that's yes where I, I stand well, that's yeah. fair enough yeah yeah, there's there's no way for me he could have continued. Um, I think that would have led to a very, I think Dens Park would have paled in comparison to what could have happened uh, if we'd kept Glass going forward, and that toxic atmosphere would not have rubbed off well on the character of the players that we have at all. And I simply wouldn't have had faith in him to move forward with the new recruitment team because the point of it was is that. The head of recruitment, the direct football will recommend players. Ultimately, the final judgment will be the manager's. And this is the manager that brought Jet to the club. That's the <laughs> reality of the situation. Um, he never learned from his mistakes. We kept making, conceding stupid goals, as I said. And I don't have any faith with retrospect now that he would keep be capable of bringing the right kind of characters into the club as well. So, yeah, I'm in the camp. He probably got longer than he was actually yeah. due. And, yeah, um, I agree. I think we could have been in a much worse situation if he'd actually stayed. Yeah, I, I agree on every count with Gav there. Um, I think that, and, you know, like we said earlier, Jim Goodwin is very good at talking, um, just as Dave Cormack is. And uh, a, a lot of PR stuff that comes out of, a lot of the company line that comes out of Aberdeen these days in spite of what's happening on the pitch is, is very easy to buy into, but I do believe him when he speaks, when Goodwin speaks about the mindsets of certain players and, you know, the, the jets and, and Ramirez, absolutely the way his head kind of flew off his shoulders towards the end of the season. And I, 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 it's a strong word to use, but I think mentality wise, it seems to me that Stephen Glass fostered, almost like a rot at Aberdeen in these players where clearly Christian Ramirez enjoyed working under Stephen Glass. You know, we saw his tweet when, when Glass departed. Yeah. Um, and clearly the way that Stephen Glass operated got more out of Christian Ramirez than the way Jim Goodwin is operating. But that, from what we saw on the pitch, that way of operation was not leading to any kind of upward momentum in any single level and I think it was fostering a pretty dangerous mentality in the club if we're willing to to utilize uh, a jet or whatever that deep into the season after lord knows how many you know he had the odd moment here and there where he looked like a mini version of Zlatan somehow uh, and then he'd revert to tight um that's a ridiculous hyperbole but you get what I mean um I, I think that much of Jim Goodwin's reign thus far has been about trying to dig that rot out of the club. And, and it, it, it's such a British football cliche, but instill a bit of grit back into it and instill a bit of hard work and, and all of that, you know, nonsense that we that we spit usually and it doesn't usually mean anything. But in our case, it absolutely does. And I, I, I think that the longer Stephen Glass would have stayed in the role, um, as much as I've appreciated him as a player over the years and all of that, as long as he would have stayed in longer, it would have taken even more time and effort to undo that. And we'd have brought more players potentially into the club who didn't necessarily fit the profile of 
because the club needed a complete philosophical change, I think, after McInnes left anyway. You know, he stuck around for a couple of seasons too long, perhaps. And, you know, you, you always get the odd... You, you guys probably get it a lot worse than me because I'm an intermittent football tweeter, but you always get the odd person from another club going, oh, you should have never got rid of McInnes and blah, 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 and all this, blah, blah. And it's, it's a really boring point to debate with people at this stage. Um, Not just from other football clubs, it's still from our own yeah. football club that people do this. Aye, and it's it's one of those talking points that I just don't even reply to anymore. I'm just, I'm sick to death of it. But to me, it was clear that we needed some kind of complete revamp after that. The glass one was taking us in the complete opposite direction. Um, I, I think that Goodwin still has significant work to do to get the last vestiges of his mentality or the mentality he imparted on the squad out of it. Uh, and I think the longer I've gone all the way around the fences with this point, but I think the longer he'd stayed around, the longer it would have taken to ultimately undo that. Yeah, I mean, I get the point that things haven't gone as well as we'd hoped under Goodwin. But if I look through this season and sift through the wreckage, I think I have to dust a lot longer to find Jib Goodwin's fingerprints all over it. Um, yeah, he's coming. He's coming to. He's coming to a horrendous situation, yeah. much worse than the one that Stephen Glass took over from, for example. Um, and yeah, there's, yeah, I've just, I completely agree with Andy. There's, yeah, there's no way of legitimizing it for me that he should have been given any more time. Fair dues. Um, Barry Robson, Neil Simpson, Scott Anson put in charge on an interim basis. Little time to settle into their roles. The rearranged fixture with uh, St. Johnston coming up on the Tuesday. Barry Robson making some wholesale changes to the team. Joe Lewis comes back in from illness. Alongside starts for Calvin Ramsey, Jack McKenzie, Matty Kennedy, and a first start for Connor Barron in an Aberdeen shirt as we hosted a St. Johnson side sitting slap bang in 11th place, having an absolute fucking shocker of a season after winning the cup double the season before. But typically, it was the visitors who got off to the perfect start. Callum Hendry, he formerly of this parish with the opener on six minutes. Calvin Ramsey buying a penalty kick for the Dons on 70 minutes that was dispatched well by Ferguson. But once again, we couldn't quite find a winner. A Ramirez header in the last minute, well saved by Parrish in the Saints goal. Kind of very difficult to take anything really out of that game. As I recall, Byron Robson, Scott Anson, Neil Simpson just having a couple of days to really, I think they had one day on the training pitch, I think, to work with the team. So very hard to read too much into it. Um, I kind of thought at that point that we might be, you know, Dave Cormack had come out and uh, or the board had come out and said that they... The recruitment process for a new manager was going to be thorough. We were going to take our time, make sure we get the right guy in charge. There was part of me was thinking there was a very good chance that Barry Robson might have been in charge for a number of weeks, potentially even to the end of the season for us to make a decision around who we were going to get, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it became pretty clear from the outset that we were in a two-horse race between Jack Ross and Jim Goodwin before it was announced on the Friday afternoon that we'd been granted permission from St Mirren to talk to Goodwin, who was then announced on the Saturday morning as being the new manager, signing a two-and-a-half-year deal to become the club's. I have us down as the 24th permanent manager because I'm a stickler. I don't think Paul Hegarty um, was ever a permanent manager. I think he was a temporary caretaker charge, even though he was there for about six months. So that's, that's where I am on this one. Goodwin then going straight into the dugout at Fir Park that afternoon. Now, episodes 31 and a half and episode 32 of the show covers that Goodwin appointment in a lot, lot, lot more detail. Graham, you can even be arsed getting out of your bed on the Saturday morning with the 31 and a half to talk about it. <laughs> right. Because I recall, because um, the club decided to announce that one about 8 a.m. or something, Gav and I were straight out 
recording a wee mini po- a mini pod in inverted commas yeah. that lasted over an hour and a half. I'm not having children and or a dog. I can stay in bed on a Saturday morning if I want to. Yeah. <laughs> the, difference, the difference of owning a cat. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. But straight into the dugout at Fir Park that afternoon, which gives you all sorts of Ali McLeod vibes for our older listeners. And it's a drab affair. There's a fucking surprise, eh? Um, Vicente Bajerwin gets his first goal for the club, a tap-in, just after the half-hour mark from an Adam Montgomery set-up, as I recall. He crossed the bottom. And then Adam Montgomery was like, Slapping the badge to the away support, which I thought was a bit mad, given he's a big Celtic man, but there we go. And then O'Hara leveling things up for Middle. So Jim Goodwin's reign up and running with one draw. There was very little to take from this one, was it? Apart from Jim Goodwin looking handsome as fuck on arrival at Fur Park. Well, the slow motion social media video that was still think about that to be honest. <laughs> um, the takeaway, you know, Bajawin's first goal, it's a tap and Mount's first goal. Good to get up and running. Kevin Van Veen hurt his shoulder pretty early on that game. He was literally dangling off his body for most of the game, and yet he still had the ability to just bully Declan Gallagher off the ball for their equaliser. And uh, that's where you come back to it. It's like Declan Gallagher, you know, he doesn't fit in with the style of play of, like, you know, playing it from the back and all that. But the thing he's good at is being physical, winning headers, bullying attackers around. And in that instance, Van Veen didn't do much. To bully him. I remember Aberdeen has thinking calling for it was a free kick and like, are you fucking mad? What game are you watching here? Um, so yeah, again, disappointing, but at least we hadn't lost him by the well. So progress True. already. Absolutely. A week off in the run-up to the Sir Alex Ferguson homecoming saw Ross McCrory commit his long-term future to Aberdeen. He signed a new two-year contract extension, keeping him at the club until 2026, presumably paying for his trip to Seville. Later in the summer, I imagine, <laughs> before the visit of Dundee to a sold out Tawdry, which included the great man himself watching on from the main stand. I bet he was fucking bored out of his <laughs> arse watching this after the unveiling of his statue outside the RDS the day before. No pressure, Jim, eh, for your home debut in the dugout. Not many Aberdeen managers have a home debut in front of a sellout crowd and the greatest of all time. To be fair, Alex Ferguson mostly watches games at Old Trafford, so he's used to it by now. I know. I love the gif. You know what? I think it's when Liverpool put like five past him or something and he just was like, <sighs> yeah. It's the one where the camera like shifts from Kenny Dalglish with a big shitty ingrain on his face, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's that one. Yeah, yeah. Again, like people say we're too negative on this podcast. We've done it before. I'll do it again. I'll give all the praise in the world to the club for the Alex Ferguson homecoming stuff. The statue is brilliant. It actually looks like him top marks well done the day before with like willie and neil simpson and gordon strachan and everybody involved was brilliant top top marks for that more of that type of shit please less of the shit we've had to endure in the season on the pitch this season please anyway let's move on from that the game itself against united it couldn't have got off to a much worse start could it um david bates doing his best andy constantine impression by just grabbing the shirt of an opposing attacker in the box repeatedly, despite having got away with it four times previously. Uh, penalty kick awarded. Mark McNulty dispatching that one with ease before we grab an equaliser courtesy of a combination of Matty Kennedy and Ryan Edwards trying to clear the ball off the line. The ball nestling into the net after a decent stop from Segrist. I'm going to call it a decent stop from Segrist because he, there's still a potential he might sign for us. Um, it wasn't that good a save, to be honest. He published him better after a Vicente Bajewin uh, shot on target. Don't, don't get it with him. Don't get it with him, Gav. Not, not I don't, for you. I don't see what people see. 
a goalkeeper, I think. Um, we should have been a couple of goals up by half time, I think. Chances for Ramirez and Bajewin going begging, but those are the, the ones where they arrived late in the box, both of them, and both blazed straight over the bar, which was nice. And then Bajewin went close again on 82 minutes, but a second consecutive 1 1 draw was how it closed out. And Goodwin went two draws for two, no rest for the wicked though, straight into March. A trip to Hearts the following Wednesday followed if Jim Goodwin was under any illusions about the size of the task at his disposal. Absolutely no doubting it here in this one. I truly, I think this is our worst performance of the season, by the way. This is my one. Uh, we, we failed to land even the merest of gloves on Hearts. Goals from John Souter and Stephen Kingsley, either side of halftime, enough to seal the points for the home side. Lewis Ferguson's penalty saved by Craig Gordon. That summed up the entire evening for us. Scott Brown withdrawn after 75 minutes for what would prove to be his final appearance in an Aberdeen shirt. For me, this is definitely for me the worst performance we've had all season. Scott Brown's final appearance, full stop. Uh, yes, his, I bet that's exactly how he wanted to go out, wasn't it? Being schooled at hearts. <laughs> all the best at the COD Army, I think they're called. The COD Army, yes. I think. Ramondo's team. Ramondo's team. <laughs> There's a reference we've not had on this show for a while. Um, it's a reference we've never had on this show. I, I don't think we need to go into any detail on that one. I don't think Raymond listens to this, but if he does... Raymond is Whoa. Gary's friend from his old work who applauded. He's an Aberdeen fan, but he applauded Ian Wright when he scored for Celtic at Pataudry. Yeah, in that 6-0 game. <laughs> he stood up and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Aye, grim, this. Uh, Terrible. Yeah, awful. This was uh, obviously getting two draws to start off with was the first signs of this. But to me, this was the point where it was quite clear that we weren't going to get any kind of bounce off the appointment and and we were just going to have to accept this season for what it was and kind of write it off even for we're, were were we 10th by this point already i think we were i think we were yeah kind of in that or or there or thereabouts we were very much in the globe yes absolutely uh and this for me was where i accepted the team's role in the globe uh, for the rest of the season and uh decided that any further enjoyment we were going to get out of this football season was going to be from the content. Um, so <laughs> Alex Ferguson. Dundee. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and Alex Ferguson the previous week, positive content. Uh, Dundee, different kind of content later on. But yeah, no, completely outclassed across the board. Um, probably a real eye-opener for Goodwin as well. You know, he, he, the weeks he'd spent on the training ground prior to this, I'm sure taught him a lot about certain personalities in the squad. Um, but after, you know, faring relatively well against Dundee United in particular, we had a lot of chances there to to put more past them and, and yeah. all of that to come into this game and just get completely swept away by a team clearly operating on a completely different level that theoretically, you know, in the removed from this season, a club of similar stature and all that to be, presented as so far above us was probably quite an eye-opener for him as well. So, yeah, the, the, I, I, I kind of abandon all hope moment for the season here, for me personally, anyway. Yeah, I mean, talking about content at this point, Steve, Jim Goodwin is probably thinking back to his post-match interview against Motherwell, thinking back to that quote about how the defence will be a really easy fix a couple of weeks on the training ground. He's probably going back to the Don's <laughs> social media folk, just like, find the master tape of that interview and scrap that part okay <laughs> cut it should pretend it never happened yeah i mean as andy said it's a team that we should be uh, 
at the very, very minimum competitive with, and they were the streets ahead of us. It was a real eye-opener for everyone, and I'm sure Jim Goodwin as well. Um, the aftermath of that game saw loads of rumours doing the rounds about there being a bust-up between Scott Brown and Jim Goodwin. Loads of conjecture about that. At the time, nothing solid ever came out about it. Next up was a trip to Ibrox to face a Sevco side. Desperately try to chase down sale to get the top of the table. Now, curiously, John Beaton was popped back in charge for this one. Aberdeen, having not seen the Loudon Tavern dweller since our last visit to Govan. Any coincidence there? Nope. What a surprise. Scott Brown, nowhere to be seen in a game that was more notable for the home support being decked out in ponchos for the day. Remember that one? They looked like they were all at like Disney World in the piss and rain, despite the fact that it was oh, like... Oh, yeah. Aye, this was their like 140 plus 10 anniversary, wasn't it? So they claim. So yeah. they claim. Truth be told, we were very much set up in a manner that I would expect us, uh, Jim Goodwin, St. Mirren side to set up at Ibrox that day. Um, we were very much there to try and get out of Dodge with a nil-nil draw. And we nearly got there. But the home side eventually scoring on 81 minutes. Dante Bovara came off the bench for his first appearance of the club with five minutes to go. Jim Goodwin's record now reading played four, drawn two, lost two, still searching for first victory I, I've got nothing to say about that game at Ibrox it was bleh, pretty much is the best way to put it I think it, three days later I thought it was confirmed that Scott Brown had left the club less than one year into his two-year deal and then Johnny Hayes had signed a new one-year extension a couple of days later to extend his stay until the summer of 2023 Johnny Hayes interestingly I noticed in the Jim Goodwin interview Goodwin stating that he thinks Hayes could play for a couple of years at our level one of the fittest guys still in the squad, apparently, which, I don't know, sounds like a bit of a challenge to um, the boys further down the uh, further down the squad, I would suggest. I mean, he's undoubtedly still very, very fit, and he runs all game. Um, yep. The, the, the ability is a little bit more under scrutiny, but um, I do think Johnny Hayes has still got a part to play. It's, um, I'm not, I don't have the Niall McGinn concerns with that one-year extension, so um, I'm, I'm okay with it. Fair enough. A couple of weeks off after this one due to the Scottish Cup and us not being in it any longer hopefully meant that Jim Goodman and Lee Sharp can maybe get some time on the training ground to sort out some of those persistent issues on show, uh, i.e. the defence and the attack and the midfield and everything else. <laughs> everything going on in the gym and the physio. Yeah, on show ahead of the visit of Sean Maloney's blockbusting hips who were struggling just about as much as we were but arrived at Pataudry fresh off a 2-1 win at Motherwell in the Scottish Cup quarterfinal the week before. Things couldn't have got off to a much worse start, could they? Calvin Rams with their own goal after 20 minutes, and everyone's suddenly shaking themselves that this could be a very, very long afternoon once again. But back into the game we come. 15 minutes later, corner Baron shot handled by Rocky in the box. Lewis Ferguson putting his penalty away confidently. In the second half, Ryan Xander Diamond Porteous finding himself dismissed once again after conceding another penalty, this time for hoofing Ross McCrory into the sky as the ball dropped to the Aberdeen man six yards from goal. Lewis Ferguson again dispatching that one comfortably from the spot. A return from Marley Watkins alongside Dylan McGeech off the bench with 15 minutes to go. The two of them involved in the final goal, linking well to set up a Vicente Bajan who smashed home a fine, fine finish to seal all three points. Your ABZFP goal of the season, nonetheless. A good 3-1 win. The Jim Goodwin Express was up and running with a record of played one, drawn two, lost three, which had Gavin... Played one. Sorry, 1-1. One, one. Christ. <laughs> a good 3-1 <laughs> win. And the Jim Goodwin Express was up and running with a record of 1-1. One, one. 
drawn two, <laughs> lost three, which had Gavin christening the Irishman as the new Sean Waltman. That's right, the one, two, three kids. <laughs> we had a couple of weeks off due to international football. We had winnable fixtures in April coming up against Dundee and Ross County to give us a shot at finishing in the top six because it was still very much on at this point. The European dream was still flickering as well, boys. Oh yeah, Sean Maloney rocked up to Tawdry in his dad's jacket and his team put in a pretty uh, Hibs performance. <laughs> um, Ryan Porch is giving us a great helping hand. Um, Hibs was, of course, going on to appeal that red card in a moment of utter insanity. Um, at that point, you're thinking to yourself, right, Watkins is back, um, Bajowin's playing well. Yep. It seems like we're getting bodies back in. Like Ramirez's attitude, I think, had changed at this point. I think his body language was very different, but not as exaggerated to the point it would become. So you're thinking to yourself, like, you know, Ferguson, McCrory's now back in the middle. Barron's an integral part of the team already at this point, looking like he's going to become the Ballon d'Or winner he's going to become. Um, Watkins, Bajowin supplying Ramirez, you know, those two games left to go. And then the, the split looks like, yeah. Maybe there's something we can salvage out of this season. Yeah, that was exactly how I felt coming out of this as well. It was that old devil hope. Uh, Fucking hope. Creeping up once again, despite the various miseries circles that this season had already taken on. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was quite a complete performance by Aberdeen, this. And, you know, we also got a nice balance with the the content that Ryan Porteous brings to the table every single time he steps foot on the football pitch, it seems. Um the team looked decent. Um, I think I was actually on the pod speaking about this last time yeah, as well. I think so. Um, but even that, Declan Gallagher entered a relatively solid performance, and I was like, "What's going on here? Has Jim Goodwin found the secret sauce for this boy? Has he finally found a way to make him look like a compelling footballer in an Aberdeen shirt?" Um, ultimately, that question was answered later on, uh, if it wasn't already. But uh, I, this was again an encouraging. Aberdeen performance despite obviously the late advantage um, and even then like if I recall after Porteous got sent off Hibs just completely lost their heads even more like I think they maybe committed a foul like straight off the kickoff from the goal and stuff and they were they were all at sea um, in retrospect you know it was a mistake on my part looking too much into uh, a victory against a Sean Maloney helmed Hibernian Um <laughs> But, you know, a strong performance with relatively nothing to complain about, aside from, of course, the early scare. It's another game where we, we get the point and we're still in that, oh, maybe we might be able to get something out of the season mode. Oh, maybe we says. might. Maybe we might. <laughs> we're only two points off four. <laughs> well, yeah, as, as Andy says, that's what gets us. But none of us were smart enough to realise that we were being had every week. <laughs> we, were, uh, we were clinging on to it. Like a bunch of automorons. We were absolute marks at the carney right there. Hey, I was the same at the time, Mike. I was the same at the time. <laughs> was JMIO Thomas still under contract at this point? Yeah, I think so. I Is think that so. for uh, for part four? That'll be in part four. Um, I feel like at this point we were almost like, you know when you see vulnerable people being targeted by like fake salesmen at the yeah, door? Like scam artists and that. Yeah, yeah, this is what I felt like at the time. Like... At this moment in time, I would have happily welcomed the club in to, you know, fit a new boiler for me or, you know, <laughs> tar my drive or something, you know. Like, fix your roof slates that don't yeah. actually need fixed. Yeah, yeah you know. Um, I still believe at this point that we we could just about scrape away because the, the league was horseshit and the glob was the glob. The glob was the, the glob was at its globiest 
at this <laughs> moment in time. I didn't hit that real moment of realization that the team actually has real issues. I still felt the team was better than what it was showing. Yeah. And we just needed another manager, a different manager to make things simple and show them a way to, to grind out results quite simply. But I, I kind of felt as well that that Hibs game would really give us a shot in the arm. You know, that, yeah, okay, yeah. we got a little bit fortunate with Porteous being Porteous. Um, but, you know, the shot in the arm, three goals, bit of confidence. We didn't really give up much to Hibs that day, as I recall, in terms of chances. The, the goal they score is a, you know, it's an own goal. It's a bit of a fluke on goal. We, we looked comfortable at the back against the hip side who looked good the week before against Motherwell. Uh, I remember going into that game being a bit worried because the boy Melkerson looked good and the boy uh, Sylvester Jesper looked good against Motherwell. You know, a team who we struggled against to create chances. So you kind of think, okay, they've got, and, and we're horseshit at the back. So you kind of think, Christ, these boys are going to have a field day. And we, we were comfortable. And I remember thinking, right, maybe Goodwin's been able to get this sorted out a bit now. We'll, this will hopefully give the team a bit of confidence. We've got two winnable fixtures coming up in April against Dundee. Mark McGee's Dundee and racist Mal- Malky McKay's Ross County. So it's like we have a massive chance here to still scramble top six. And then from there, who knows what? Um, we'll bring you that in part four, which comes up <laughs> next week. Um, Andy Murray, thank you so much for returning on a Saturday evening, bless you, mate, to spend two and a half hours <laughs> talking about this particular horse shit. I. Aye, uh, no worries. Always a pleasure, uh, even when it is dissecting three of the worst months I've had as a certainly as an adult football fan in my life. This was the worst day, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. At, at least once she got into April and May, you know, the last glimmers of hope had gone. You'd accepted that this was just going to be a death march, and hopefully we wouldn't somehow end up in a relegation playoff. Yeah, this this was worse because it did give you it gave you the Hibs game, for example, and it gave you something to look forward to in Mark McGee, um, and it didn't pan out. It's the Ooh. hope that kills you. I feel Always. we keep saying this to our guests, but like next time we get Andy, we need to deliberately go for an exclusively positive episode. <laughs> we put Andy through the ringer this this season. I don't know how that's possible. I did like that. I noticed that somebody tweeted you today, Andy, talking about how like he really liked your tweets generally about you know um, about the wrestling environment because you're you know endlessly po- positive. And I nearly jumped in it to be like, <laughs> which in itself is like a massive, massive like character shift because you know you're you're an Aberdonian, which means <laughs> by nature we're all miserable bastards anyway. You know, like so Andy's really going positive here. We'll, we'll get you definitely next season, hopefully. Aye, a nice win over Rangers or something, you know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly sweet. Keep the faith. Stand free. Andy Murray, it's been a pleasure having you back again with us on the ABZ Football Podcast. Likewise. Thanks for inviting me. So that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please remember to like, subscribe, follow whatever on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 48, where we'll bring you part four. And I promise you, it's the final part of our deep dive review of the 2021-22 campaign. And we're going to bring you the first ever ABZ Football Podcast phone in. There's still time to join us. Drop us an email at abzfootballpodcast at gmail.com. We'll get you on, maybe. And if we bring you any news next week of any developments of Tawdry on the recruitment front as and when it happens. We look forward to seeing you then. Stand free.